Xbox On. Welcome to Xbox On, a podcast with one host about one console, Xbox. I am said host, Jesse DeRosa, and on today's episode, we'll be talking about the latest Xbox news for the week of September 7th, 2023, including Starfield is officially out now, and I'm here to tell you all about my initial thoughts following 22 hours of playtime. Additionally, we have some smaller news items for the week to discuss, plus listener comments and more. Spider-Man Shattered Dimensions was released for the Xbox 360 in the U.S. Now, this was the one that followed Web of Shadows, which was the last... I played Web of Shadows. I didn't play Shattered Dimensions, if I remember correctly. I don't know why we had this on PS3 for some reason instead of Xbox. Yeah, I'm not sure what the reason behind that was. But yeah, I liked... At least Web of Shadows, I liked a lot. That was the one that came before this one, if I'm not mistaken. That game was... Really cool. The uh, it's more linear Spider-Man than like the PS2 like Spider-Man to the video game based on the movie or like the more modern Spider-Man for PS4. But the uh, Web of Shadows and Shadow Dimensions, one of the the Beanox developed, uh, Activision published Spider-Man games from the late 2000s, early 2010s, were I feel like pretty well regarded. I don't know, I, well remembered for sure. I definitely liked the first one that I played a lot more linear mission structure, but it was really cool how like you had, it was kind of like the spider verse before we had, you know what we have today with the spider verse movies that are super popular, but yeah, getting to play as like noir Spider-Man, Spider-Man 2050, whatever, 2,500, whatever his name is. And then all the different Spider-Men, which at the time growing up, I actually really didn't like the idea of multiple Spider-Man because I was like, no, it's just the one Spider-Man. Stop making a story. That's somewhat grounded feeling. So like, fantastical but the older i get i'm like shut up dude who cares and uh i I love the spider-verse stuff it's not still not my favorite spider-man but i embrace it and i welcome it and uh those games would be you know xbox thinking about uh you know making these games available on modern xbox hardware bringing this stuff forward getting on game pass wouldn't it be cool if we could if we could play these spider-man shadow dimensions and web of shadows on game pass later on down the road once you got the activision deal locked up i know it's probably not going to happen i know there's some licensing stuff you got to work out with uh with marvel in order to get that going but man wouldn't it be cool just saying but yeah shout out to shattered dimensions 13 years old so and yet another one that makes me feel old because this is kind of from like my my prime youth years, so that's not fun. But hey, if you couldn't tell by the music this week, it's uh, it's Starfield week. So Spider-Man, shut up. This isn't about you. You'll have your moment in October for the PlayStation fans. But for us Xbots, we finally have a moment to somewhat shine for for just a minute here because Starfield is finally out. The game that's been hotly anticipated for many years, and then in more recent years has become an incredibly important game to the Xbox name as. Of course, you know, three years ago, Microsoft acquired, or I almost said Obsidian. They did acquire Obsidian in 2018, uh, acquired Bethesda, Zenimax, uh, the whole whole kit and caboodle, as they say in the 1900s. And yeah, and so Starfield has, has since become, of course, an Xbox 
first-party game from Bethesda Games Studios, a now Xbox first-party team, although they're not in Xbox Game Studios. They're still part of ZeniMax, but ZeniMax is Xbox-owned, so it's still kind of all in the family. You know this. Why am I telling you this? The point is, it's a big day for Xbox. Starfield is officially out. Actually, as of the day I'm recording this, it's the, the 6th of September, which is the official launch date for the game. That's the date that will be on the Wikipedia page, mark my words. Uh, but of course, if you're listening to this podcast, if you're even remotely interested in Starfield, like myself, you've probably already played this game because early access began last week on the 1st, and we've all played a bunch of it, or so it seems based on just kind of the discourse surrounding this game, that everyone's already played it, and uh, lots of things to be said about it. Some people with some super hot takes, some people who are super happy, just really enjoying the game, and everything in between, and we will get into all of that this week. That is the bulk of what this week is going to be about, just to kind of lay it out for you. This is the big blowout Starfield episode, so... We are going to have all the regular segments. In fact, we're going to do it in the same regular order, too. But when we get to the what I've been playing, we're going to put a pin in it, finish up all the news, and then at the end of the show, we're going to do Starfield plus comments because a lot of your comments this week were about Starfield in particular. And so we'll just kind of do all that towards the end. So we got a couple, I guess a couple of comment sections because we have some non-Starfield-related comments, which we'll do at the very, very end. But if you are listening to the show and you're saying, damn, I'm just here for Starfield. I don't care about the other stuff. Just get me to Starfield. Good for you. I uh, Lucky for you, I put timestamps in the show. So whether you're listening on uh, podcast services or YouTube or what have you, check the description. You will see timestamps. Just click on the timestamp that I'm going to title Starfield Discussion, all in caps, so you can't miss it. And just click right on that, and you'll get right into the meat of it. But we are going to do all the other stuff. Not a terribly big news week. You can imagine there's kind of something more pressing happening. It's that people are busy enjoying Starfield. So that's the main. I, th- I assume that's what we'll spend at least half the show talking about. But we do have enough of all the other stuff to kind of warrant the regular traditional run of show. So just to kind of lay it out for you, I'm very excited to discuss uh, Starfield with all of you guys. I'm not going to spoil anything up front. I will just say this. As the episode is already titled, you see there, I've played 22 hours of the game. And I, uh, I have a lot to say. Although, spoiler alert, I'm not one of those, this game this game sucks, FX box people. And that's why I say it's, you know, almost a, almost like a gratifying time for Xbox because they finally have, I mean, Starfield is the, the big game, right? It's like this is the kind of make it or break it. Xbox has been in such a weird situation the past few years. And with the, with the, since the Series S and X released, honestly, this has been the big game riding on them, especially with Halo Infinite kind of being a half success, half misstep for them. Now all all bets are on Starfield to kind of be the next big thing to shepherd this console brand and identity moving forward and, and really be a huge selling point for not only Xbox, but for Game Pass. But we'll get into all that later. Big, big week for Xbox. So that's Starfield. Very excited to talk about that. In the meantime, guys, let's go through our normal run of shows, starting with the notable game releases of the week. God damn it, Starfield. I just said we'll come back to you. Well, would you look at it there? Starfield is releasing this week. The real release date, not the fake release date for people who pre-ordered the deluxe edition or anything like that. This is just the regular release date. Uh, It's out now. In addition to that, uh, something worth noting, not a video game per se, but uh, definitely uh, Xbox-related, the Xbox Series S... The one terabyte model that comes in that slick black. Uh, actually, I don't. I kind of don't like it in black because even though it looks really good on the X, on the S, you don't have that cool contrast of the black fan against the white console. So I actually kind of miss that. I like that look a little better. But no, you know, a lot of people, myself included, tend to usually steer more towards that like all black kind of look with their tech. So 
if you're looking for something like that, you got the new Xbox Series S. It is the same exact hardware as before. The only difference is now it comes in black. It's $50 US more. And of course, you get 500 more gigabytes for a total of a terabyte hard drive as opposed to just the meager 500 gigabyte hard drive that came beforehand. So if you're willing to shell out extra 50 bucks for an Xbox, but then add an extra 200 bucks for an Xbox, you can go for the one terabyte Xbox Series S as opposed to the 500 gigabyte Xbox Series X as opposed to the $500 Xbox series x listen this is very this is very easy to follow listen mom and dad when you're when you're when you're shopping for your kid come christmas time god bless you although i don't i actually don't find it that confusing i don't think it's that confusing i think people overreact about how confusing these things are also if you are a parent for some reason that's trying to figure out what xbox to buy your kid this holiday season and you're listening to this podcast in the middle in early september there's something wrong with you, so I don't have to feel bad about all the weird shit I say. You're, you're a problem in and of itself. Uh, all right, so that's notable things releasing this week. Starfield, new Xbox color slash storage option. It's exciting times here on Xbox, guys. You can download three Call of Duty games or two copies of Starfield on that one Xbox. It's just amazing. Uh, all right, let's move on to the corrections and things like that. We have one thing to talk about. I don't think this is so much a correction, but maybe something to uh, add further context. I think last week I was... We're talking about, uh, what is it, Sea of Stars? Man, my mind is so fogged on any game that's not called Starfield right now that I don't even know. We're talking about Sea of Stars last last week that came out, the new RPG game. Let me fact check myself, because what if I'm saying the wrong game? Nope, Sea of Stars is absolutely the correct game. Yeah, so it came out last week, and I was talking about how I really want to play it. I really want to give it a try. I'm always looking for a way to get into that JRPG genre, because it's a genre that I've always been exposed to my whole life. All my all my brothers always really loved these games, but I could just never find one that really clicked for me, save for, like, Tales of Symphonia maybe a little bit I got halfway through that game or like if you even want to count it a few years ago I really got into uh, Scarlet Nexus but that's not a traditional JRPG but it is a Japanese role-playing game anyway I was just saying I really would like for this to maybe be a game to help me finally get into this genre and break down the barrier between me and the Japanese role-playing game and uh Kronky wrote into that as well as as well as uh, Sam Torres, or Sam Frito as he's known in the western part of the country um, wrote in and just wanted to say Mr. Hostman, if you ever want a traditional, quote-unquote, traditional Japanese role-playing game, one that will appeal to you, I'd recommend Dragon Quest XI. It is a modern, it is mostly modern storytelling and graphics, but the classic combat. Also, Dragon Quest manages to avoid all the lame anime over-dramatic character-slash-storytelling. And I jokingly responded, I'm familiar with Dragon Quest XI, responded jokingly, no Dragon Ball, because obviously the Dragon Quest series has that Dragon Ball Z art style, because the same artist worked on both things. And then Sam... Frito, also known as Sam Torres, if you're on the East Coast, wrote in and says, Cronky, good choice. Dragon Quest XI is above and beyond. Probably one of my favorite Square Enix games of the past year. So not only is Cronky recommending it, but we got backup from Mr. Sam here. And I just wanted to say, in regards to this, because Dragon Quest, very, very prolific, very prominent Japanese role-playing game, has a lot uh, to contribute, has contributed a lot. It has a lot to do to, uh, to do with, I guess, the, the Western success of the Japanese role-playing game. I gotta say, I've never played a Dragon Quest game, and I never intend to, and here's why. Because I look at Dragon Quest, at, and I think it's basically like, if you wanted to play a real Japanese role-playing game, but you want it to have about the same amount of depth, and, uh, I don't know, like, depth and meaning behind it as a Pokemon game, and that's kind of what got me out of the Pokemon games. Like, Pokemon is still fun. Like, I played every Pokemon from from Blue up until Sun and Moon um, in order as they came out. 
And the thing that finally made me put down Pokemon wasn't that they're not fun. It's just that I feel like I'm playing the exact same game over and over and over again. And the thing I need to spice it up, you know, because like, well, isn't that what Call of Duty is? Isn't that what Halo is? It's just basically the same kind of thing over and over and over again. I need something more to kind of soak me in. And I know the the big selling point of a Japanese role-playing game, aside from its unique gameplay mechanics, is the is the characters and the story. So I need a Japanese role-playing game where I can be enthralled. And I, I believe it. I believe people aren't crazy. I believe the Japanese role-playing fans are onto something when they say there are some games out there that have genuinely phenomenal stories, great characters. You'll get really, really deep in it. Listen, as someone who just spent 22 hours playing uh, Starfield, a Western RPG, very different from a Japanese role-playing game, but a Western RPG that very much has the same objective of getting you deeply enthralled within the universe, I can confirm that I am definitely someone who is susceptible, potentially at least in this case, to becoming deeply, deeply invested so long as they can build a world and a set of characters who I can get behind and and care about, you know? That definitely happened to me this past week with Starfield. I want to have that kind of experience with the Japanese role-playing game the way way so many Japanese role-playing video game fans do. But Dragon Quest, the reason why I won't give these games a try despite I know being considered such a traditional, easy to jump in, great way to get your feet wet with a true stem to stern classic Japanese role-playing game. The reason why I refuse to give these games a try is because I know that their storytelling and their characters and what all they offer is generally considered razor thin. Correct me if I'm wrong, but that's always how I've understood it is that Dragon Quest Eleven is like, it's like uh, it's like your gateway drug into the genre, but they're not necessarily saying anything profound or, or, or you know genuinely cool or anything like that. So I don't know. That's why I've always like really wanted it to be like a Chrono Trigger or like a Final Fantasy six or some or seven even. Um, you know, just something that's a little more like people are like, oh man, I really love the story of this game. I really love the characters of this game, and I just I can't find the JRPG that does that for me. So I don't know. Maybe Dragon Quest Eleven that that is available on Xbox, isn't it? Yeah, it was on Xbox One. Okay, that's what I thought. Yeah, Dragon Quest. Yeah, I don't know. And I can't. I can't get over. I can't get over the art style. That's why I always go for the Tales series, the the Tales of series, because I really like the aesthetic of most of those games, and that's one of the things that's always made me gravitate towards wanting to like those. But yeah, I don't know. It doesn't matter. We don't need to linger on this because honestly, I don't give a shit. If there's anything I learned this past week, it's that. Uh, there are plenty of great Western RPGs to keep me busy. Not that you necessarily have to go with one or the other, but just to say that, you know, if, if JRPGs don't end up working out for me, at least I got a bunch of other great Western RPGs, especially if you're going to continue to be an Xbox player, because not only did we just get Starfield and do we got, you know, um, Avowed on the way, presumably next year, but between Fable and Clockwork Revolution, all these other games, trust me. We got we got the Western RPG market on lock over here on Team Xbox, and then of course we got the FPS genre. It's always been on lock with Xbox, so I'm I'm eating good. Whether I got these fucking anime weeby dragon quest warrior freaks uh, on my side or not. So thank you for the write-in for not necessarily a correction, but for recommendation, some further context, something to maybe contrast my opinions and feelings last week. Anyway, let's move on. Nobody cares. Um, I don't know where to put this and I'm not being cute or funny. I, I, I genuinely didn't know where to put this. So I just, I'm giving it its own segment this week before we jump into our first set of stories. Uh, rest in peace, Jimmy Buffett. I unironically love Jimmy Buffett. And uh, this is, I'm very sad to have learned just a couple days ago that uh, Mr. Buffett has passed away. I think he was like 70, 74 or 76, something like that. I think it was like 74. 
I don't know. Too too young, if you ask me. I feel like this is a very arbitrary line in the sand to draw, but I feel like anything under like 86, 88, way too young. Way too young. So rest in peace, Jimmy Buffett. Um, I love Margaritaville. Uh, the song, I love. Actually, I love a lot of Jimmy Buffett songs. Not in like a... I'm feeling like I need to pump some iron at the gym or I'm just feeling a little emo today. Going to put on some latitudes, changes in latitude uh, necessarily, but more like, um, I don't know. I just, Jimmy Buffett's fun beach music. It's fun. Uh, it's fun. Listen, I just, I, I go on cruises. I, I like cruising. I like the beach. I like Disney world. They're not that they're, they're Jimmy Buffett adjacent. Okay. So it's not that big of a surprise that I'm a Jimmy Buffett head or, you know, that we call ourselves as parrot heads. So it's not, it's not too far of a stretch to think, you know, guy that moved down to Florida to be closer to theme parks, beaches, and cruise ships likes Jimmy Buffett. Big whoop. Okay. I'm white. So sue me. Uh, anyway, so rest in peace, Jimmy Buffett, uh, genuine music legend. And it's, it's sad. I, I saw the, I saw the parades and everything like the kind of like the celebration of, of Jimmy Buffett and everything down in, in the keys where Jimmy Buffett lived for a long time and, and wrote most of his, his most iconic songs. So yeah, shout out to Mr. Buffett. You will be missed. Thankfully I live in Orlando, Florida where I cannot visit, where I can visit not only one, not two, but three Jimmy Buffett restaurants as well as a, an entire resort. So yeah, let's move on to the mildly amusing stories updates Stories that we can get into for a little bit before we move on to the bigger stuff. Again, not too big of a week. We got a couple here and then a couple in the main segment. And then then we'll basically just get right on into Starfield and comments and all that. So starting out with our first one here, you guys, let's let's talk about non-Starfield related Bethesda. Particularly uh, developer machine games and Todd Howard's comments regarding their upcoming Indiana Jones game. So from Video Games Chronicle, the only website my internet browser lets me on these days, Bethesda's Todd Howard has seemingly teased plans to reveal its Indiana Jones game in 2024, and for those keeping track, that's next year. Announced in January 2021, the title is in development at Machine Games, the Swedish studio behind the modern Wolfenstein series. Bethesda game director Todd Howard, who is serving as executive producer on the Indiana Jones game, briefly commented on the project at the end of the of an Esquire interview published to coincide with the release today of Starfield uh, today as in September 6th, the damn recording quote. I'm a giant Indiana Jones fan, he said. It can be brought to the video games. It, sorry, it can be brought to video games in a unique way. The game is obviously you know, you're exploring stuff. It's about him, Indiana Jones. So if you're playing the game, how do you feel that you are indeed playing versus just watching. According to the report, Todd Howard wasn't allowed to reveal more about the game, but in his interview he left the but as the interviewer left his office, he added, "We'll talk next year." How- Howard, whose favorite film is Raiders of the Lost Ark, the first Indiana Jones film, said that said of the game's genre last year, quote, "I would just say it's a mashup. It's a unique. It isn't one thing intentionally. So it does a lot of different things." A, G- a GQ report published last month, however, claimed that Todd Howard was midway through executive producing the game. Quote, they've got the whole Nazi killing thing on lockdown, and they're doing a great job, he said, of Machine Games' work on the title. All right, so a little update there on Indiana Jones. The big thing being that it seems like 2024 is when we're going to get the big blowout reveal, which sounds about right this year. Uh, you know, if we're looking at the Bethesda stable of teams, the big thing was, of course, 
Starfield and Redfall. So we got to have some Bethesda news worth talking about next year. What's going on? We know damn well it's not going to be a gameplay blowout for Elder Scrolls 6. So we're looking at their stable of studios. We know that uh, both of the both of the arcane teams um, in France and Texas have both gone recently. We know Bethesda Game Studios literally just went as of today. And uh, now we're going to look at their stable saying, okay, who's next? Who's next? Who's next? Machine Games, they haven't put out a full-fledged, proper, totally developed by then game since uh, since Wolfenstein, the new Colossus, which was, what was that, 2018? So it's been a little bit. It's been, oh man, next year when they show off Indiana Jones, it'll have been six years since they put out a game. I know they did the Young Blood thing in 2019 or whatever that was, 2020, 2019? I think it was 2019. That doesn't count. They did that in, in relation in uh, in partnership with Arcane, and it was kind of like a little DLC thing. It was a shorter, smaller, bite-sized game. Not the same thing. They haven't put out a full-fledged video game in five years. Next year, when they show Indiana Jones, it'll have been six years. And honestly, with the way games are done these days, I feel like if they show the game in 2024, it won't come out until 2026. So I'm a little hesitant to say that they'll even get a, a new game out in um you know in, in in less than eight years or anything like that because it's a uh, game development takes a while. We know this now. This is how modern game development is. We you know we we spend spend all day as video game fans bitching and moaning on Reddit and Twitter asking for games to be bigger, better, more ambitious. We ask the impossible. We want the games to look the best. We want them to run the best. We want them to load the fastest. We want them to have hundreds of hours of gameplay and all the features that all the other games have, even if the other games aren't even remotely one-to-one comparisons because why should a game not be everything under the sun and the best version of it at the same time? So knowing that that is the expectation that we put on developers to make every game the best game ever made, uh, the expectation is likely that Indiana Jones is going to be something big, it's going to be grand, and it's not something that can be done in like a four to five year development cycle. So I wouldn't expect this game till probably 2025 at the earliest, realistically 2026. But it is good to know that next year we'll probably get a proper reveal, or rather, I suspect we'll get a proper reveal. Here's hoping that when we get a reveal next year, it's not some stupid cutscene cinematic thing where you see some guy narrating over some freaking pictures of treasure chests and caverns and jungles, and then at the very end you see like a back shot of Harrison Ford putting the hat on, and he goes, "Let's, uh, let's, let's uncover this mystery," uh, and then and then it does the the freaking Indiana Jones theme song and shows the logo of the game with the name. And it's going to be called Indiana Jones and the dial of box office uh, disappointments. And then it will say 2025 and then 2025 we'll see it get pushed to 2026. And then 2026 we'll see it get pushed from spring to fall. And then the fall we'll see it get pushed from October to November. And then in November it will come out and then PlayStation fans will trash it and give it a bad Metacritic score. And then Critics will give it a pretty great score, but not as good as whatever the latest PlayStation game is at the time. Just to keep in line the fact that Xbox games can do well. They just can't do as well as PlayStation games ever, period, end of discussion. And then we'll all be like, hey, remember that Indiana Jones game that kind of came and went? And then we'll move on to the next thing, and hopefully it's another Wolfenstein game. Because goddamn, Machine Games is good at those. But uh, uh, that's a little bit of looking into the future. Call me Raven Simone and slap me on the tushy, because uh, I just I just guessed the next three years of Machine games existence for you right here on the show uh okay joking aside yeah it's i mean there's not much to say right it sounds like todd howard had an interview talking about starfield they asked about indiana jones he said it's a video game we'll talk next year and so there you go we'll talk next year indiana jones i'm actually i 
I like Indiana Jones. I wouldn't say I'm like an Indiana Jones fan, but I, I like Indiana Jones. I've liked... I actually don't think there's... Hot take. I actually don't think there's a single Indiana Jones movie I don't like. Some are better than others, but I, I don't hate Kingdom of the Crystal Skull the way people do. I think it's fine. It's definitely the weakest, but it's not bad. And I thought the hotter take, maybe? I thought the one that came out a few months ago, I thought that was genuinely a pretty good movie. Again, not as good as the original three, but I thought it was a damn fun two and a half hours of my life, so... I'll take an Indiana Jones video game. I'm actually a lot more optimistic about this game now than I was when it was first announced. Not because machine games have done something to prove to me that they're the ones who should be doing this game, but just because I, I just feel a little more like, yeah, yeah, I'm optimistic about the franchise. I, I like this. I like this series, which, I you know, in typical Jesse fashion, terrible timing because I think everyone else is pretty much fed up with the existence of Indiana Jones at this fault at this point. I really hope they do mocap 86 year old Harrison Ford though, uh, for this, for this game. I hope they don't get a young actor to do the mocap for Indy. I really hope they're like Harrison Ford. Let's put a bunch of, let's put a, a black morph suit on you with a bunch of little, little dots and we'll make you hop around like Smeagol and, and, and then put you in the game. And so here's hoping I doubt it. <laughs> All right. Keeping with Bethesda, but now with Starfield, uh, we move over from Todd Howard to Bethesda's head of publishing, Pete Hines, who in a different interview with GamesIndustry.biz has something to say about Redfall, saying that, quote, they're going <laughs> to the company is dedicated to making it a good game, which is not something I think you're supposed to be saying. But anyway, in the interview, Hines was asked if the reception to Redfall has placed more pressure on Starfield. Uh, again, this is basically the higher ups at, at Bethesda and at Zenmax doing the media rounds, doing the Starfield media tour, and they're being asked other questions. What about Indy? What about Redfall? Et cetera, et cetera. And that's where these these little news droplets are coming from. So Hines answered the question uh, that even if Starfield was to have a tricky launch, Bethesda would not just leave it to fail. He said, quote, we are always in the process of learning, so that's not new for us, he replied. We don't like failing to meet our players' expectations. At the same time, we are the same company that had launched that had launches that didn't go the way we wanted, and we don't quit or abandon stuff just because uh, it, it didn't start right. Hines went on to state that Bethesda would continue to work on Redfall to ensure that it became, quote, a good game. Quote, the Elder Scrolls Online PC launch was not flawless, but we stuck with it, he explained. Now it's like the insanely popular. Now it's like an insanely popular multi-platform. Uh, it's the same thing with Fallout 76. Redfall is no different to us. Okay, we didn't get the start we wanted, but it's still a fun game, and we're going to keep working on it. We're going to do the 60 FPS. So he, he's he's committing. People have been wondering where's this update. It's been months. What's the status? He's here saying we're still going to do that 60 FPS update. Just you keep waiting. Quote: We're going to get it to be a good game because we know as a first party studio game pass lives forever there will be people 10 years from now who are going to join game pass and redfall will be there all right there are two here's the glass half full glass half empty approach to this let's be positive first glass half full i appreciate a candid response i appreciate pete hines basically saying like listen man we've made mistakes in the past we screwed up with fallout 76 we screwed up with elder scrolls online and most recently we screwed up with redfall and we are going to fix that because we owe it to the fans we owe it to the people to make good on our promises and to right our wrongs and hey game pass is a service that lives on forever or at least in perpetuity we don't really know right but who you know who's to say that some guy isn't going to join game pass in, in 10 years you know when the xbox series triple x comes out 
and uh, the the Xbox Series 360 comes out and uh, is going to go, wow, I was seven years old when the Xbox Series X was a thing, and now I'm much older. I'm in my twenty late twenty somethings and late early thirty. I don't know. I'm I'm older, and now I want to go explore the back catalog of games that Grandpa used to play. And you're gonna get on the Xbox Series. 360 triple X and you're going to jump into game pass, which is probably just called pass at that point, because everything has got to be streamlined and minimized because we live in a culture and a world where we are too busy to say long things like game pass. And now we just call it pass and you're going to log into pass and you're going to scroll through the games. You're going to go rub your glasses, except you won't be wearing glasses because everyone will have LASIK at that point in history. And you're going to go, gee whiz, what's this game called Redfall released in 2023? Huh? I see a user review from when the game came out all the way back in 2023. It says this game is trash. Well, let's give it a go. They're going to boot it up. It's going to run in a, a flawless 730 frames per second, which will be the standard in the year 2057, uh, which is apparently 10 years from now. And this kid is going to be like, wow, Redfall is not trash. It's a great game. What a beautiful relic from a simpler time back when, uh, you know, back when Twitter was called X before they renamed it to Y. And it's totally different game, totally different experience. But the game lives on is the point. So I get that. I respect that. And I appreciate that. Now let's move on to glass half full uh, or glass half empty uh, attitude where it's like, all right, man, you're the head of uh, you're, you're the head of publishing for Bethesda. Why are you out here admitting that you have failed your fans on multiple occasions? Why are you admitting we have effed up with Elder Scrolls Online? We've effed up with Fallout 76. We just effed up with Redfall. And you know what? Oopsie, we're sorry. Keep buying our games. Keep playing our games. Uh, basically, what we just did was prove to you that we're unreliable. And based on that information alone, we're probably going to screw up again in the future. But bear with us. I mean, hey, Starfield's not broken. So there you go. Just keep buying our stuff. And I just feel like that's kind of a bad precedent. And someone of this stature isn't supposed to be in interviews admitting that they keep effing up and saying, Give us another try. We'll we'll make it good later. Give us your sixty dollars today, and we'll fix your broken game tomorrow. And that's not a good look. You shouldn't be saying that stuff because, while again, while I appreciate the candor and and and, and holding yourselves accountable and and somewhat, I guess, if you want to interpret it in such a way, the humility. Ultimately, I can't. I can't. Like the the good thought of like, oh, that's nice for them to admit their faults. Immediately is then followed up by a thought that's like, hey, you guys keep screwing up and you're not getting any better. Why do you, why do we keep buying your games if you keep doing that? So that's not a good thing. And the last thing I want to say is, his last quote there, actually is like a is like a like a collar pulling like worrisome kind of quote where he says. Uh, we're going to get it to be a good game because we know as a first party studio, Game Pass lives forever. There'll be 10 people 10 years from now who are going to join Game Pass and Redfall will be there. Uh, so what you're saying is that because Game Pass is a service that lives in perpetuity and people will play it for years and years to come, you can just completely botch the launch of a game and burn tons and tons of customers up front at launch and then be like, oops, well, you know what? You'll forget eventually, like you always do. And then people in the far-flung future who play this game won't even know it was ever broken because they're not you. They weren't experiencing it at the start like you are. And it just, I don't know, it seems like you're basically saying Game Pass is an excuse for us to release half-baked or unfinished products. And I say this as someone who was on the uh, on the nicer side of, of reactions to Redfall. I liked Redfall. I played the game 
start to finish and enjoyed it a ton and said the game has glaring issues, absolutely should have been delayed, really should not have been released in the state it was in, but I very much enjoyed my time with it and see how there's a very good game baked underneath um, a work in progress, which is what we got with Redfall. So I, I don't know, man. This is me as a fan of Redfall, as someone who's trying to be a little a little optimistic and appreciative of the of the transparency. I don't think that's a good quote. I think that's that's going to age bad. Like that's that's you know you know how it works with gamers. They either they either ignore everything that they don't care about in the moment, or they just latch onto everything as fodder to like ruin your name and your identity and your reputation. And I feel like this is a quote that could very easily be weaponized and held against Bethesda in, into the future, where it's like you're basically just saying Game Pass gives us a free pass to give you half baked games on the regular because. You know, you're not really paying seventy dollars. You just subscribe to a service, so you're not that invested if the game we we promise to you is kind of like not finished when you get it. And I I feel like the only thing kind of working in their favor in response to this is like, well, you know, we're talking about this on on September six, and I can confidently say before we get into our Starfield discussion, one thing Starfield is not is half baked. You know, say what you will about certain creative decisions you may or may not like about the game. The game is not half-baked. It is polished. It is complete. It is it is ready for the masses. As someone who's put over 20 hours into the game, I will confidently say this is a game that is ready to be packaged up and sold on store shelves for $70 a copy, and you will feel like you got your money's worth. If you enjoy a game like... If, if you pick up a game like Starfield, say whatever you want about it, but one thing you can't say is that the game is not finished. It's not content complete. It's broken. Any of that You can't say any of that because the game is definitely... Polished, ready to go. Probably one of the most full-fledged, complete packages Bethesda's ever released. So, at the very least, you do got that working for you. You're admitting how often you effed up in the face of one instance where you really got it right. So, there's at least that going for you. So, all right. And we got one more, I, although I really don't have much to say on this, just to kind of note that it's happening or whatever. So, late last week, um, well, actually, on last week's show, we talked about how in certain re territories, Minecraft had been raided for Xbox Series X, S and X. And up to this point, Minecraft had just been the Xbox One version running on the new consoles, backwards compatible. Just like on the PlayStation side of things where the, the Minecraft you play on PS5 is just Minecraft PS4, but it's backwards compatible, so you can play it. Um, and then we saw some ratings for a Series S and X version of the game about a week ago. And then late last week, a VGC contributor, Andrew Marmo, um, noticed that Minecraft had been classified for Xbox Series consoles by the U.S. Entertainment Software Ratings Board, or the ESRB, as we like to call them here in the good old USA. The game was also classified uh, by USK in, in the Video Games Rating Board in Germany. So that was, that's the one we saw about a week or two ago. So following this discovery and the publishing of this news, uh, Microsoft's spokesperson reached out to VGC and said the following, quote, given the number of platforms and geographies in which Minecraft is available, we periodically go through rating reviews and updates with different region regional boards. Uh, the recent rating is not indicative of any new version of or platform support for Minecraft in the near future. So, I mean, the rule of thumb, the old adage is if they speak, if they speak to the rumor and they try to shoot it down, it means it means it's false. And if they don't say anything at all, it means it's real. So the fact that Microsoft has stepped in and said, hey, this is a game that lives on. It's a live service type game. And the majority of our player base is playing these games. It's playing Minecraft on newer platforms or playing it on the series consoles or the PlayStation 5 because that's the hardware that is 
you know, most actively used currently because that's the console people are buying and using on a day-to-day basis. So when we reinstate it and, and have to do different ratings for updates and things to the game, we have to put it under the hardware it's being most commonly used at, and I assume that's what they're getting at. And they're saying the, game, the game's not coming to Series S or X. The game is continuing to be what it is, but that's why you see the, that branding. And I assume that's kind of what they're getting at. But, yeah, the fact that they're, they're jumping in, they're saying, hey, don't get people's hopes up. There's no Series X native version of the game coming. It's just good old Minecraft. And, of course, it works on old Xbox. It works on new Xbox. But we're not doing some crazy-ass Series S, Series X separate release. Although, honestly, that's a little disappointing. I feel like this should just be one of those things where there's a big Minecraft update that takes advantage of the Series S and X with ray tracing or whatever other features they want to add. And then it's one game that you download. If you download it on your Xbox One, it's just Minecraft. If you download it on your Xbox Series X, it's Minecraft for series consoles. And that's what they really need to do with this game. I mean, it's like your biggest first party. Let's be honest. If there's one game Microsoft owns, one first party game, even though it's not console exclusive, that Microsoft has in their stable that is reliably well received and considered to be a good game that is not controversial to any extent, it's good old Minecraft. So let's go ahead and give it the proper treatment it deserves. Go ahead and do a Series X update for Minecraft. Let's 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 see it happen. All right, that's it for all of our opening news stories. Our stories of mild amusement. Generally, from this point, we move on to the what I've been playing and all that stuff. But uh, we're, again, Starfield is what we have to talk about, and we're going to say that for the end of the show. Although I won't skip our other big segment we do at this point in the show, which is the what I've been eating. So before I can tell you about Starfield and how I've been enjoying that game. I gotta tell you all about what I've been eating, and you guys, it's officially September, we've held it off long enough, it is officially the Halloween season, I know, some people are like, Halloween doesn't begin until October, shut up, tell that to the Christmas decorations I see on store shelves already, I'm not talking about the Christmas stuff that comes out before Halloween in October, I'm not talking about the Christmas stuff that's for sale around Thanksgiving time, I'm talking about the Christmas decorations I'm seeing on store shelves right now in September. I want to hear about it, okay? It's Halloween time. Deal with it. Haunted houses are open. Candy's on store shelves. It's Halloween time. And with that said, Starbucks has just released, I think this is the first time, maybe I just didn't know until this year, but I, I see a lot of buzz around it, and I went ahead and, and, and jumped in and bought one, but uh, Starbucks has just released a new pumpkin spice latte coffee creamer that's available in grocery stores at least here in the u.s i don't know where else but you know starbucks their iconic pumpkin spice latte that has been just you know starbucks version of the pumpkin spice latte has had so much to do with the pumpkin spice obsession that has sweeped american culture over the past 10 20 years i'd say and I know it's considered like a basic white girl thing. It's like, oh, you like your pumpkin spice lattes. That means you're a basic bitch. That means you don't have good taste in coffee. You know what? Shut up. I like coffee. I'll drink coffee black. I'll drink coffee with sugar. I'll drink coffee with cream and sugar. I'll drink coffee that tastes like regular coffee. I'll drink coffee that tastes like freaking mocha frappuccino, this smoothie milkshake concoction. I don't care. Good coffee comes in all flavors, sugar contents, in different types of coffee bean concentration. I don't care. I like the pumpkin spice latte from Starbucks. If it means I come across you as a fake coffee lover or a little basic bitch with my live, laugh, love poster and, and or, or plaque on my on my kitchen wall, I don't really care. I'm going to keep drinking pumpkin spice latte till the day I die because it's a good-ass drink. 
and it's a great way to signify to your taste buds that fall is here. Even if it is like 97 degrees out and there's palm trees and it's Florida, don't care. It's, it's fall time, baby. Pumpkin spice latte. So I don't really go to Starbucks. I can't afford it. It's, it's just, it, I can't, well, I can't justify Starbucks. It's just, it's just too expensive. And on top of that, because that's the kind of cliche, right? Ooh, Starbucks is so overpriced. Okay, let's take the money out of the equation. The experience of going to Starbucks is too stressful. Every Starbucks is just too crowded, especially here in Florida, where it's not enough for like a place to just be a little busy. Everything in Florida is like do or die here. Like I fucking like a Starbucks back home in Georgia. That's like, oh, it's busy. I had to wait five minutes before I could put my order in at, at Starbucks. No, at, at, at freaking at freaking in Florida, we take it as a freaking theme park challenge. We're like, oh, Starbucks. I wonder if we can wait longer for Starbucks than it takes for us to get on a freaking roller coaster at Disney World or some crap. Like Starbucks lines here are intimidating to say the very least. You're gonna you want to go through that drive through at Starbucks. I hope you leave for work an extra hour early because that's how long it's going to take for you to just put your order in. God forbid they even get the thing right or get it out in a decent amount of time. So I don't mess with Starbucks. It's just it's just too much of a hassle. There's too much love for it. It's just too many people surrounding it. And I just feel like it's kind of like it's like that scene in Spider-Man 1 where where Spider-Man sees the crowd of people surrounding a person on the ground. He's like, what's going on? What's the, what's going on here? And he's like pushing through the crowd. And he's like, that's my uncle. Okay. Starbucks is like that. That's my uncle on the ground. It's my uncle Ben on the ground. He's dying, except it's Starbucks and I want to get some coffee. I'm going to let my uncle Ben die and I'm not even going to know he's dying because I'm not even going to try to get through that crowd. I'm just going to go, there's a crowd over there. I'm heading steer clear in the opposite direction. So pumpkin spice latte, it's good, but I'm not going for it because Starbucks is just too much of an experience. It's too expensive. It's too crowded. It's scary to be there. But now... Starbucks is selling the pumpkin spice latte coffee creamer you can buy in stores. So you go to your local Target or Publix or what have you. I think Walmart even had it. Sam's Club had it the other day. And you could just buy yourself some coffee creamer with the pumpkin spice latte poured into whatever coffee you brew at home. And uh, should taste somewhat, maybe a little bit like a pumpkin spice latte. Obviously, coffee creamer and coffee doesn't taste the same as a special kind of uh, latte with espresso and the freaking whatever they use in the stores and all that. So I understand it's not going to taste one-to-one, but I assumed it would probably taste pretty good, right? You know, Coffee Mate and Nestle and all the other big brands in the grocery stores have had like pumpkin coffee creamer and coffee or, or pumpkin spice coffee creamers for many years now. And none of them are half as good as a pumpkin spice latte from Starbucks. So I, I assumed at the very least, this should be better than all the other guys right it's starbucks for god's sake they 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 freaking made pumpkin spice what it is today well i tried this thing and i'm i'm about three or four cups of coffee with this thing in at this point and i gotta say i i I lied to myself after the first cup but now i'm on cup three or four and i just gotta be honest the starbucks pumpkin spice latte coffee creamer is not very good it's not bad but for six dollars a bottle i don't recommend it I will stick to my regular old half and half. You get a cup of coffee, a scoop, of, a, t- a tablespoon of sugar, and like a dash of half and half. Call it a day. Or if you're being really good, use almond milk. Or if you're being really, really good, you just do the black coffee with a tablespoon of sugar and you call it a day. But I will take that over the pumpkin spice latte coffee creamer because it, it is it's just not very good. Um, so disappointed to say so. It has a, uh, I don't know, it, it, it just it just tastes like cinnamon and then like 
like cream and then nothing and there's no cohesion it's like you get one flavor then the next flavor then it fizzles out and i'm just using it on classic old original dunkin donuts ground coffee blend nothing fancy pour it into my little coffee maker hit and go and it's not doing me well so i'm it's a little too sweet you know you don't even have to add sugar the the, the creamer on its own is, is is pretty sweet and it's just not doing it for me so i'm disappointed to say that you can't have the magic of a Starbucks pumpkin spice latte at home. Um, knew it was too good to be true. And uh, so with that said, I will continue to uh, just drink regular regular coffee with cream or with, with half and half and, and, and a little bit of sugar. And then I will drive past Starbucks with lines wrapped around the building three times. It's, I swear, Starbucks and Chick-fil-A, the same freaking thing. The audience has scared me. It's, the lines are too long. I don't know what people are doing. Although, shout out to Chick-fil-A. They do a great job of moving the line fast. Starbucks, they're not the worst, but I'm not waiting that line. All right, that's it for what I've been eating. You guys, let's move on to the main news segment real quick. We'll go through all that, and then we'll come back to talk all things Starfield. Okay, let's jump into the news, starting with something that happened pretty much right after the show went live last week. But uh, some, some sad news from VGC. Saints Row developer Volition has been shut down effective immediately. A message from the studio reads, quote, The Volition team has proudly created world-class entertainment for fans around the globe for 30 years. We've been driven by a passion for our community and always worked to deliver joy, surprise, and delight. This past June, Embracer Group announced a restructuring program to strengthen Embracer and maintain its position as a leader in the video games industry. As part of that program, they've evaluated strategic and operational goals and made the difficult decision to close volition effective immediately to help our team we are working to provide job assistance and help smooth the transition from our volition family members for our volition family members we thank our customers fan and fans around the world for all the love and support over the years you will always be in our hearts and quote volition was originally formed 30 years ago as parallax software corporation before changing their name to vol, vol- <laughs> changing their name to Volition in 1996. The studio was acquired by THQ back in 2000, and when THQ went bankrupt in 2012, it was then acquired by Coke Media and placed under the Deep Silver label. Coke, known as Playon, was then acquired by Embracer Group in 2018. In the early days, the studio was best known for the Descent series, as well as Red Faction, but it was Saints Row series beginning in 2006, um, followed by Saints Row 2 and Saints Row the Third, as well as Saints Row 4, that became the studio's most popular franchise. In recent years, Volition output has seen less critical acclaim. Agents of Mayhem was released in 2017 to a lukewarm response, and an attempt to reboot Saints Row last year was also met with mixed reviews, with scores of 61 to 65 on the review aggregate site Metacritic. Embracer CEO Lars Wingfor uh, previously had said that he's personally disappointed by the reception to Saints Row when he spoke during the Embracer AGM last September. Months later, it was announced that the studio had become part of Gearbox following the disappointing reception to Saints Row reboot. However, after Embracer announced in June that it planned to close some of the studios and, and cancel some projects as part of the new restructuring program, it has now emerged that Volition was part of those plans. End quote. Or not, end quote, end of story. <laughs> yeah, so, I mean, this one's obviously just disappointing because regardless of your thoughts or feelings about a particular developer or a game they've made or whatever the case may be, it's always sad to see a developer shut down, um, see people lose their job. And uh, so, yeah, this is deeply sad and concerning as conditions in the games industry start to get 
a little bit wonky and sideways. And and, and, and further to that point, things that embrace are really not looking good. Uh, they tried to acquire a bunch of money to help, you know, inject some sustained life as they continue to acquire all these teams and sustain all these development costs. But as inflation is going up and up and up and these and these costs of operating these studios and, and borrowing money is just going astronomically through the roof. They're starting to see a, th- a situation arise where they need significant return on investment. And they have so many teams to sustain, so many buildings to pay for, so many things that they're responsible for now that they've acquired, consolidated, and just grown and grown and grown over the years that now it's like they're in a situation where they need game development costs to go down and they need big output and big success from these teams that they have um, in their projects. And the weird thing about particularly Volition in their in their most recent game last year's Saints Row reboot is that despite the bad critical reception, my understanding was that the game did okay. Uh, I mean, they were bragging about it at one point last year that the one the game had crossed the 1 million sales mark that they were like kind of pleased with the trajectory of the sales of the game. And so I'm sure the game's sales tailed off pretty quick and that maybe the game didn't end up making that good of a profit, especially considering that I mean, it was like the first game they put out in five, six years at the time. So it's, it you know, been in development for a while. If all it sold was like a million copies or, or, or less than two million copies or something like that, it might not have been enough to really justify the cost of operating and owning this team. Plus the bad PR from, from the game itself um, may not have been, you know, spelled necessarily a positive bright future for the team as agents of mayhem didn't really do it saints row 4 while it did well and was well enough received was considered a step down from the the third game um which is i I believe mostly considered to be like the peak of the franchise and then they come back and try to do this reboot that's considered like an, an abomination by a lot of fans although i'm sure it's just gamers being exaggeratory as is commonly the play the case but um i don't know this is just um it's kind of surprising to see them shut down Volition because it doesn't seem like they like their games bomb. With the exception of Agents of Mayhem, it doesn't really seem like their games ever bomb in terms of commercial success. It's just they're kind of a mixed bag with the with the with the critical reception. Which, I mean, wouldn't that be the case for a lot of these embrace own teams? They're kind of like the the purveyors of the double A game space. And I don't know. While Volition is definitely to to an extent a, a shell of what it once was. This is a, a big history. I mean, as, as the story reads, 30 years in, in the industry and and the Red Faction series is highly beloved and these guys have been around for a long time and it's just kind of sad to see them go away, especially after being there for so, so long. And, you know, they're a team based out of Illinois, which, which is not a great situation to be in because, you know, game development is getting super expensive and super competitive and there's not too much of a, of a development scene in, in Illinois. So... I mean, these guys are going to have to, like, move a lot of these developers. If they want to stay in this industry, they're going to have to start going places. They're going to have to, like, go to California, go to Canada or wherever to try and find markets where video game development is more commonplace in order to continue to stay in this uh, in this industry. And so, I don't know. It's just it's really sad to see that be the case. And, you know, you hope the best to all the affected people because anytime a studio shuts down, it's not like, well, good riddance, Saints Row reboot suck last week. It was it was so woke. I hated that. they. I, I don't remember what the criticism was, but there was some bullshit about people being like, they neutered the game. They took out all the all the offensive stuff to, to, to comp, you know, to to please the snowflakes or whatever kind of stupid ass criticism people always have today about everything. Everything's always about some nonsense um, 
social shit with these with these with these gamers. So I don't know. I, I, I think it was like something like that. But you know, whatever. They um clearly they disappointed and they dropped the ball with this most recent entry, but I can't help but feel for like the people that have families and have livelihoods and economic times are getting worse and now these people are out of a job and they have to find what's next. And I know a lot of people are like, well, game development's, you know, it's a cushy job. It pays well. Uh, it, you know, it's, you, you gotta be privileged. You'd be in a pretty privileged position to be able to work in game development. And to some extent, some of those things are kind of true, but also it's like, I don't know. Game development is a very, it's kind of like Hollywood a little bit. It can be very project based. Not everyone has the, the blessing of being able to stay at one team for very, very long. And a lot of the way the industry works is it's like, okay, we ship to the game onto the next project. And a lot of people have to end up like jumping ship to, from one team to another as they, as they try and keep active and keep working and keep themselves employed and, and relevant in the space, especially as, you know, gaming is a huge undertaking. Building a video game isn't just like we are a team of video game developers who all have the exact same skill sets. Like there's many, many disciplines going on to it. So anytime, uh, you know, a studio falters or, or a game is complete, it's like you got all these different people who all have different abilities that contribute in different ways to video games. And you got to find a, a way to, take this really messy situation and find a place for all these people. And you, we all know how reality works. It's not how it's going to go. Some of these people are just going to be shit out of luck and that's the end of the road for them. And so I don't know. I can't help but just feel for the people who are affected by this. Now you could say it's all their own do doing by neglecting what the fans loved about saints row and kind of going in their weird direction and doing what they did with the game. I don't know. I didn't play the game. I'm not here to speak to it. I also have very limited experience with saints row. I think I bought, Saints Row 4 one time when it was on sale on Xbox for like $4 and I played an hour of it and then that's all I know about Saints Row. So not here to really speak to it. I just know it's kind of the more over-the-top wacky GTA alternative and it's honestly it's a little it's a little sad that they weren't able to kind of carve out more of a name for themselves in, in, a, in a time where Saints Row always has been seen by most people as like B-tier or C-tier GTA and you know in a time where people are just I mean, look at the guy who jumped on stage at the freaking Gamescom the other week. People are people are jonesing for some GTA. So the fact that the knockoff GTA guys couldn't couldn't pull out a game that that lit the world on fire is, uh, it, you know, maybe it's their own doing. Maybe maybe it's deserved. But for one thing, it's I can certainly say it's, it's sad. It's unfortunate. And you hope that all these people land on their feet. And honestly, they were under. um, they, Yeah, like, like it says at the end of the story, they were pushed onto the gearbox team so i almost wonder you know that in some way that affects gearbox and now i wonder if gearbox is safe as they they're, they're a team i kind of worry about a little bit because i know everyone loves them they do the freaking they do the borderlands games and everyone loves borderlands but it's like they did borderlands 3 because the other stuff they were working on wasn't lighting the world on fire and battleborn was a complete failure when that came out like what was it like seven years ago or whatever and now that Borderlands 3 and Tiny Tina's Wonderland happened, it's like, okay, where do we go from here? You're not going to make just another Borderlands game. It's like, you guys you guys now have to prove yourselves, and it's kind of a precarious situation for them a little bit. And this lights a fire under everyone at Embracer's ass a little bit, you know? It's like, we got to go out there and really fucking swing for the fences and, and, and make it happen if we're going to prove to Embracer that as you continue to shut down and lay off people and downsize teams that we're the team worth preserving we're the team worth continuing to invest in we're the team to leave the fuck alone right now and i'm sure there's a lot of sweating going on and, and unfortunately unfortunately embracer owns a ton of teams in the industry right now so there are a ton of people 
who are potentially going to be affected by this. And, and they're not, they didn't announce that statement in June to say, Hey, we're, we're, we're slowing down and consolidating just a little bit. We're going to, we're going to have to restructure just a little bit and then shut down uh, volition and then be done with it. I mean, there are, there's more to come. This is the beginning of this restructure. This is not the one and done aspect or one and done decision that had to be made, unfortunately. So we're going to continue to see, more people lose their jobs, more layoffs, more sell-offs. I wonder if they're going to try to sell some of these teams, you know, like sell Crystal Dynamics to Microsoft, dude. I don't I don't know. Like they more things are going to happen. We're going to see this get uglier before it gets better, unfortunately. So really sad state of affairs. And hey, this is, you know, let's rewind the clock back to the beginning of 2022 when every week for like two months, I'm pissing off everyone who listens to the show because I'm continuing to make the statement for this case for why I don't love the idea of Microsoft buying Activision and why I don't love consolidation in the games industry because when times are good, they're good. And then when times are bad and one one party's in charge of everyone's fate, shit gets really dire real quick. If these were all independent teams or if these were all teams spread out across the industry owned by a variety of different publishers and in, in different owning hands, then maybe there'd be a lot more, you know, way to spread the shock in the in the in the burden that is going to have to be bared soon as the games industry heads more and more into a bad direction that we're seeing and uh maybe maybe more people could be spared or have more of an opportunity to prove their worth and validate to their publisher or to the whoever they're working with why they need to stay in business and continue to be invested in and continue to be left alone because they're they're on to something their next game's going to hit big and I don't know when, when you got so many teams you're responsible for and times are bad, a lot of innocent hands can, uh, can end up, you know, paying the price. So I don't, I don't know. I'm not feeling good about Embracer. Definitely feeling not good as always about mass consolidation and ac acquisitions in the games industry. But yeah, let's continue to change our Twitter profile pictures to be the fucking Xbox game studios logo or the Xbox achievements logo. And, sit around and be 37 years old all day from our fucking Samsung Galaxy S phones and, and be like, PlayStation bad, Xbox should buy, Xbox should buy Dunkin' Donuts, fuck you, I don't know. So, I don't know, I'm not, not feeling good about things, but shout out to the developers who lost their jobs, hope you guys land on your feet, hope all is well, and uh, just, you know, again, you don't have, you didn't have to like the most recent Saints Row, it seems like, from an outsider's perspective looking in, it seems like they missed the mark on what made Saints Row special, and they kind of did their fans dirty at the end of the day. And so that's that sucks. They shouldn't have done that. But, you know, Volition is a is a team that's been around for a long ass time. And that means something to the industry. When when it, when you have an industry as young as the games, the video game industry, and you lose a 30 year old team like that's that's a big part of history. <laughs> that's You know, it's not nothing. So amazing no. <laughs> all right let's all right let's talk about sag after let's continue to talk about how the games industry is getting worse listen we know games are making a lot of money we know fortnite makes money and people think that means that like games are just some freaking cash cow but things are getting tough out there right like games are really really expensive to make consolidation is happening it's forcing out uh, a scenario where small players cannot compete uh, game services are beginning to have an influence on on how indies are funded and which ones get 
notoriety and actually get the spotlight and which ones just kind of flounder and release and just drown and fizzle out. And just there's a lot of shifting and things happening in the games industry that's like, this is kind of exciting. It's kind of I'm kind of curious to see where this goes, but also it's like it's a little bit concerning. And I hope I hope everyone lands on their feet okay. You know, the the cream is rising to the, to the top. If you're Bungie, if you're Bethesda Game Studios, you got nothing to worry about. You're gonna continue to be at the top of the at the top of the pile as as you always were. But if if you're Volition, you better hope your next game fucking blows up, lights the world on fire because. You're sure as hell not about to be the next Fortnite, and uh, when when everyone just thinks video games are just full of call, when the whole games industry is just full of Call of Duties and and in Fortnites, then um, a lot of things get overlooked. And let's get a little deeper into that. So from VGC again, the only website my internet browser allows me access to. SAG-AFTRA, the un- the union for the U.S. actors, uh, is is moving towards the potential strike against video game publishers. It's been announced. The union, which is behind the Hollywood actors strike, that's, you know, unless you're living under a rock, you're probably well aware of at this point, uh, which has taken place since July, said that on Friday last week that they had authorized a member vote after it reached a stalemate in negotiations with game companies such as Activision, ooh, Take-Two, uh, and more over wages and AI protection. SAG after... After I don't know, you're supposed to, people always say it like it's SAG after, but it's SAG after AFTRA um, is seeking an 11 percent increase in wages for game perform, uh, performers, which is the same it's seeking for those who work under film and television contracts. So actors, voice actors, mocap actors, people who work in video games, actors in gaming, and also wants protection from a- oh, also writers, writers, uh, script writers narrative writers and video games it also wants protection from ai which it says poses a threat to the performers artistry and livelihoods and uh you know we already have i think who was it matt booty or was it aaron greenberg i think it was matt booty talking about how they're going to use ai in gaming and it's going to be great for narrative uh stuff as well uh, so sag is seeking an 11 percent increase blah, blah blah all right the companies in are in negotiations all right, the companies in negotiations include Activision, Disney, Electronic Arts, Epic Games, Insomniac Games, Take-Two Productions, and WB Games. So a lot of usual suspects, as well as uh, some other guys. It's good to see Insomniac in there fighting the good fight. They, they, they're they a developer that's always been associated with, like, just being a really good place to work. I don't know. People, as it, as it goes, they take really good care of their team. So not not surprising to see them be by far the smallest player in this pool of names fighting the good fight for their people. You know, not to say pro or anti-union, just to say, I don't care about taking stances. I'm too uneducated to say definitively. Just to say, I'm all for people being able to speak for themselves, fight for themselves, and go after what they want, whether you think they're entitled to it or not. Uh, simply be un-American to, to want to encourage and allow a world where people can fight for themselves and fight for the betterment of their lives, their livelihood, their people. So I'm in favor of it. SAG-AFTRA has a separate contract with video game publishers that was recently extended to November 2024 and allows talks to continue. Quote, once again, we are facing employer greed and disrespect. Once again, artificial intelligence is putting our members in jeopardy of reducing their opportunity to work. And once again, SAG-AFTRA is standing up to tyranny on behalf of its members, uh, said the president of the organization, Fran Drescher. SAG-AFTRA's chief negotiating negotiator, Duncan Crabtree, Ireland added, quote, the voice and performance capture artists who bring video game characters to life deserve a a contract that reflects the value that they bring to the multi-billion dollar gaming industry. 
voice and performance capture AI are already among the most advanced uses of AI. And the threat here is very real. Without contractual protections, the employers are asking performers to unknowingly participate in the extinction of their artistry and livelihoods. Voting on strikes Voting on the strike will be held on September 5th, which already passed, as well as September 25th, which has not passed in case you need a calendar or, or are listening to this podcast when it's released. In a statement to the BBC, Audrey Cooling, a spokesperson for the video game uh, companies involved in the negotiations, said that all sides were seeking a fair contract that reflects performers' work, saying, quote, we are negotiating in good faith and hope that we can reach mutual benefit, mutually beneficial deals as soon as possible, she said. All right. So again, I'm a little... Just to be completely blind and honest, a little, little too uneducated on the subject matter to really speak to any real authority on this, as you know, maybe the case with most stories we talk about on this podcast. But hey, stop it. The thing is, my, my understanding is it has something to do with the fact that these big companies are able to use like all the data collected from all these voice actors to do this work. And it's kind of in their contracts as they're doing kind of their traditional work with voice recordings and things like that, that they're able to feed all this work into algorithms to create AI that is savvy enough to basically create really good artificial voices so that they can, so that they can basically replace these actors with AI voices. And, you know, you feed a a complex and savvy enough algorithm, enough information, you can help have them help write scripts and write character dialogue. And I think, you know, we're not about to see like, Hey, uh, hey, chat GPT, here's freaking uh, Starfield. You think you can write an equally compelling video games narrative uh, as this game? Go. You know, it's not going to be like that. But I think the threat is that, and this mostly comes in kind of like the fluffing out of games, where it's like the NPC dialogue, um, the kinds of things they say, the ways they interact, uh, the way they sound, a lot of that stuff can just be offset to AI to where like you could have like a a small team of writers who write an overarching narrative and do some like core narrative writing. And then like a core cast of actors who do like the main characters and the main narration of of the game. But you can fill out all the edges and all the round out kind of the experience with a lot of AI filled and stuff. And that's where your NPC work and things like that side quest type stuff comes into play and all can be fed through AI. And in addition to that, they're just saying, Hey, like shit's getting expensive. Inflation's high. Um, a lot of companies are making hand over fist money in gaming right now. A lot of publishers are, are making more money in gaming in some ways than they've ever made before. And it's like, Hey, we want to see that money trickle down and we want to see everyone be fairly compensated, not just the producers and the publishers and the, and the studio heads and things like that. But we'd also like to see everyone down. You know, we, we, we see this with the, with the, um, with the, the game testing, um, the QA testing, the QA testers unionizing and things like that. It's like, we, we just want to see, that kind of that kind of profit trickle down and in effect all the other people who work on this project who are are normally not as handsomely compensated and maybe as as the cost of living rises dramatically maybe uh, everyone else should be given new pay to reflect that rising cost of living so that we can continue to all live fair and even lives and maybe instead of just uh, price gouging at grocery stores and allowing home insurance companies to abandon states because they don't think they can make enough money there. Uh, hold corporations accountable and maybe give people a fair and honest wage so they can afford a $2,500 
one-bedroom apartments in, in San Francisco, not San Francisco, God, one-bedroom apartment in San Francisco, I don't know, I, I'd, I'd be shocked if you can find anything less than four grand or something, but, you know, like, fucking here in the middle of nowhere, Central Florida, you can't even find an apartment for under, like, two grand these days, it's like, what are you, what are you gonna do, man, like, people are just out here fighting for a fair and honest way to live, and I, I can't say I'm against it, like, I, I'm sure... To a lot of people, it's like, oh, man, well, these people are just bitching and moaning. They already make good money. These people are basically famous. You know, a lot of these video game voice actors and stuff. It's 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 really not about that. I think people would be surprised, you know, when you look at the distribution of the money that comes in from these products. It's unevenly, you know, shared among the people who contribute to the project. And, it, and this is just actors and writers basically saying, like, hey, we feel like we have uh, not been given our fair share. And, again, I'm just going to sit here and promote their right to do that but more big picture outside of that kind of like ooh, this is where i stand on the matter more big picture i think this is this is the thing game development costs are going through the roof game developers are often in really expensive cities where it's really hard to justify why your fucking game developer has to be in the middle of southern california where it costs an arm and a leg just to breathe air um and on top of that we're seeing inflation take off like crazy we're seeing game prices need to jump. We saw game prices already jump to $70, and a lot of reports are saying, hey, if, uh, if, if, if PlayStation and Xbox and all these guys could have saw what would happen with the economy in the years following the pandemic, these prices might have jumped to 80 bucks instead of 70 bucks. You think $70 is bad? Oh, my God. And, yes, a lot of very specific games are making hand over fist money. We get it. If you're Activision making Call of Duty, if you're Epic making Fortnite, you, oh, you're making so much money with in-game transactions and season passes and all that stuff. But that's the that's the 1% in gaming. You look at the majority of game developers, the majority of game publishers, the majority of people working in the games industry, they don't have a sticky platform service type game like that. That's why everyone's after a sticky live service type game is because that's guaranteed money. That's guaranteed job security. But not everyone has that. And a lot of people are just working project to project on games that will do anywhere from totally tank and bomb to games that will do okay, just enough to get you onto the next project and hopefully not fail down the road. And people are just trying to secure themselves a, a better life. And if you're publishers, if you're executives at these companies, you're looking at the rising cost of development and you're like, we got to tamper down on the cost. But if you're the people in, in, in the trenches making the game, baking the cake, you're like, we got to fucking get our cut. Prices are going up. Cost of living's going up. We see these fat cats at the top making all this money and we want our slice of cake too. So it's like, it's that situation. And I mean, we don't have to get too quote unquote political, which I don't see why earning a fair and honest wage is seen as a political commentary of any sort, but you know, it's just like, I don't know, maybe, maybe we just need to think about the way life is right now and the way, like what it costs to be a human and to breathe oxygen and to fucking live with a roof over your head and be like, Oh, we need to distribute the, uh, the, <laughs> the earnings of the product in such a way that everyone can continue to survive and, and live fair and honestly, rather than just be like, okay, Bobby Kotick, uh, we are going to pay you handsomely if Modern Warfare 3 is the best-selling Call of Duty after its first two weeks, which you know it will be. We're going to get you a $12 billion bonus and three intern girls to harass. Fuck it. Four intern girls to harass. One of them won't even speak English. So when, when she tries to complain to the media, good fucking luck. She's, she's not going to be able to tell them all the dirty things you did to her. And you can threaten all of their lives. I don't give a shit. You can tell all of them you'll kill them. It'll be great. And we'll give you so much money. And then, and then the guy at the bottom of the tier is like, 
I did voice acting for for Martian number three on Starfield's DLC. Can I please get a, a pay bump? And they'll be like, no, fuck you. And then that guy's going to have to move back into to his parents' house in Minnesota, and we're going to laugh because we're gamers and we don't have souls. And that's how that's going to go. All right, so let's move on from that just because, again, not qualified enough to really give too much fruitful, lively commentary. But, again, it's just one of those things, like, a lot of things shaking and moving, and this, unfortunately, this extends to all aspects of, of, of our lives right now, right? Even if you're not, I assume the majority of people listen to this podcast, 99.999% of people listen to this podcast, probably don't work in gaming. If you if you work in gaming, you live this, listen to this podcast, there's something medically wrong with you, I highly recommend seeing a doctor, but we all see it, right, in our day-to-day lives. Shit's getting expensive, the economy's getting a little funny in all part, all corners of the globe, it's not just here in the U.S., um, and a lot of industries are kind of in like a holding pattern of like, we're saying things are getting bad, but it's kind of gotten bad in some ways. In some ways, things haven't gotten bad yet, but we're all anticipating for things to get bad. And it's like, has the bad part already come? Are things about to get worse? Are we about to have a huge economic crisis? And then you got like the dudes with the real asshole slicked back hair on YouTube talking about, oh, the housing crash is coming. Just wait. We can buy all the houses from the poor people and then Airbnb the fuck out of them. And we're, you know, like there's, there's a... There's a feeling in the air. Anyone, anyone who's even remotely a working class adult knows that like it, it, it feels a little funny right now. And I, I just I think what we're seeing here reflected in the news right now in the games industry is that they're feeling it, too. They're, they're feeling the, the funny thing in the air. And we don't know if the bad things happened yet, if the bad things yet to come. And if it's still yet to come, how bad is it going to be? And so everyone's just trying to prepare for the storm. We're buying sandbags and water because a hurricane is coming. If we're lucky, it will uh, detour the U.S., hit Canada, and we'll all be safe. All right, moving on to our last story. Not really a story, just a little update. Every month at the beginning of the month, Xbox Wire posts the big old Game Pass update here. The game's coming and leaving Game Pass this month, so let's talk about them real quick. Available today through Game Pass. I always say this game wrong. Why do we say this game? Grease? Gris? Grease? Gris? Gray? Gray? I think it's Gris. So today, it's available on Xbox, Game Pass, Cloud Console, and PC, as well as... Starfield, cloud console and PC, day one game pass. You know you got to play, baby. If you're not playing it, are you even living? Solar Ash is also coming on September 14th, cloud console and PC. And then also, big one here, September 19th, day one game pass get, cloud console and PC, Lies of P. Demo's already been out. I'm sure a lot of you have already given it a go. But if you're a Souls fan, you're looking for this Pinocchio Souls-like game, Lies of P coming out in just a couple weeks, game pass. But it's not all good news. We're losing some games here on the uh, old Game Pass front. A couple of ones worth really noting here as well, because I know a lot of a lot of people have written in over the over time and and sung the praises of some of these games. So, Amazing Cultivation Simulator is leaving PC on September 15th. They're all leaving September 15th. The following games: Amazing Cultivation Simulator. That's not one of the games people have been singing the praises of. Although maybe it is good. I don't know. Aragami 2 is leaving on the 15th. Cloud Console and PC. Danganronpa V3 Killing Harmony anniversary i bet you can guess what country that game comes from actually shout out to danganronpa apparently those games are really good i wouldn't know uh dc league of super pets the adventure of crypto and ace leaves uh cloud console and pc and the following games the rest of the games are all cloud console and pc games uh fuga fuga melodies of steel metal hellsinger i thought that one just came out not too long ago sid meyer's civilization 6 tainted grail conquest that sounds sexual and train sim world 3 because the first two weren't enough 
So be sure to download those games, give them a go before they're gone forever. You got till September 15th, and of course you get a little discount if you go and buy the game now before they leave Game Pass, just to kind of incentivize you to keep playing the damn game. I've heard good things about Aragami, Danganronpa, and Metal Hellsinger. And of course, Civilization, popular game series as well. That's going to do it for all of our main news. Let's close out with a couple of important enough news stories. Stories important enough to make the podcast, but not important enough to warrant our own discussions. And then we get into Starfield. So real quick, Paradox Interactive's long-in-development action RPG Vampire the Masquerade Bloodlines 2 has returned with a new developer, developer and release date. The company announced on Saturday that the Chinese Room, the Brighton UK-based studio known for the exploration games like Dear Esther and Everybody's Gone to the Rapture, uh, good games, will be taking over development of the game, and the game is now planned for a uh, fall 2024 release as opposed to a January 2024 release, so it's been delayed. Next up, THQ Nordic has delayed Alone in the Dark's reboot. The game was originally supposed to come uh, later this year, but now it's been pushed to a January 16, 2024 release date. Game's coming to Xbox Series S, X, and PC. Next up, EA have revealed World Rally Championship, WRC, the, this year's game in the series, developed by Codemasters, who EA bought a couple years back. You remember uh, Take-Two was trying to buy them, and then EA swooped in and bid higher, and now they own Codemasters. Uh, they've rebranded the series with a new name. It's called EA Sports WRC, and it will be available on Xbox Series S, X, and PC via Epic Game Store, Steam, and, of course, the EA app. Uh, the game will come out on October or November 3rd, but customers can uh, begin begin playing the game on October 31st, which is Halloween. If they pre-order, the digital pre-order uh, gives you access to the game a few days early. Woo! Next up, Microsoft has detailed Xbox's September system update, which is rolling out this week. Headlining the update are the ability for players to stream their games from Discord onto their Xbox. Or, yeah, stream their Xbox gameplay to their Discord friends, I should say. We've been waiting for that update. It was announced a couple weeks ago. And a new reporting feature that we talked about recently as well is now on the consoles. It's now in this update. It's a voice chat to console. Wait, well, let me restate that. It's a new reporting feature for in-game voice chats on console and also is launching in select English language markets, U.S., U.K., Canada, Ireland, although I don't know if that's real English, Australia, and New Zealand. First introduced back in July for Xbox Insiders, it lets players capture 60 seconds of clips and report inappropriate voice activity on any multiplayer multiplayer title with in-game voice chat on Xbox Series S, X, and of course, little Xbox One. Now, unprecedented for this section of the podcast for us to have a comment, but we have a comment. Rebecca don't two eight five two writes in like my robotic pronunciation says this is um in response to when we talked about kind of the reporting features and Xbox trying to cl- clamp down on on bad actors and and being more aggressive about banning unsavory speak on xbox live i'm still going to call it xbox live i don't care what it's called it's not called game pass it's not called xbox network it's called xbox live because god damn it i'm a boomer and uh yeah so rebecca wrote in and says firstly super excited for tomorrow referring to starfield not only does starfield release but i get to wear a cool as fuck watch that means you got the cool special edition version of the game but it's also my 29th birthday or yeah final year of youth god that is um i turn 29 next year and i'm terrified i keep thinking about how scared i am to be 30 so happy birthday <laughs> anyway getting on to the comment the reason why we have it here in this uh, section of the story rebecca says i'd also like to comment on the new banning system where this is more in reference to the strike system about like the different point strike system but uh i figure this is a good place to bring it up since this is also in relation to banning and, and getting people in trouble on xbox live or holding people accountable as i should say 
being a girl and playing online suck. This is her words, not mine. Uh, although, I wish I was a girl. Then my hair wouldn't thin. I wouldn't go bald. Being a girl and playing online sucks. I can't even say hello without having everyone scream at me to go back to the kitchen or have since come out of hiding to sexually harass me. I've not played online with a headset in years because I just don't feel comfortable. Being judged and discriminated because of my body parts really fucking sucks. I'm not a snowflake, but I have no online friends because I'm not a male. Would would give anything to be invited and have and have an engaging conversation without it turning sexual or some sort of harassment and or bullying. Bringing on the new system, heart emoji. So, yeah, I thought this was a good comment to read here because, um, well, first of all, Xbox On has an absurdly male-centric audience, so having a female's perspective here helps um, because we had the back and forth with the different commenter a few weeks ago about, like, oh, this is stupid, Xbox is kind of overreaching over here in the, in Europe. We have different rules that don't allow for corporations to kind of meddle with people and bully them. Like people shouldn't be locked out of their platform that they've invested time and money in just because someone reported them and it was deemed too harmful to certain players, snowflake, whatever kind of talk. And um, again, not to misconstrue that person's the way they meant what they had said. I'm not entirely sure I was representing their comment the way they intended for it. So I'm not trying to speak ill of anyone, but I did want to read this comment from Rebecca because I feel like, this right here is the reason why, because it's easy for what I assume the overwhelming majority of people listening to this podcast are male, uh, for all of us males to sit here and be like, oh man, they're going to, uh, they're going to ban you or, or kick you off Xbox for a week just because you, just because you said you were going to fuck some guy's mom and just because you said they're a stupid little bitch. And like, because not everyone has the same experience coming onto Xbox. And at the end of the day, Xbox has every financial incentive to keep people feeling comfortable and engaged on the platform. And so if you create a, a, a system for, for reporting and um, disciplining users who are offensive, aggressive, harassing other players, you can hopefully fuel and facilitate a much better online system where people feel like, hey, I'm a girl and I feel comfortable putting on a headset and chatting with these random strangers the way a lot of us feel. Or like, hey, I can not have to worry about someone calling me the N-word if I'm black because they, you know, they they said, oh, you sound black. I'm going to call you the N-word now because as, you know, as much as it's like for a lot of people, it's like, oh, yeah, people are just being stupid. You know how it is. People feel comfortable hiding behind the keyboard and saying whatever. It's like still like you don't you don't want to talk to people that way. And if you can create a an accountability system, if you're Xboxing, you can create a system to hold people accountable for engaging in that kind of behavior, you might create an ecosystem where first of all, you have less of that kind of filth being thrown around. And, and, and secondly, you, people who are normally on the receiving end of that kind of vitriol and commentary might be like, Hey, I feel like I can go jump into the call of duty lobby now because I don't have to worry about some guy who, I, I don't know, maybe harassing me and saying disgusting things to me. So I don't know. I, there's nothing really more for me to say on the matter. I just thought it was good and, helpful to have someone else's perspective on the matter, someone who might actually deal with this. Um, you know, I don't, I don't, you can say whatever the hell you want to me. It doesn't hurt me. I also realize like when I jump on the Xbox ecosystem, I'm in the most like milk toast safe from harassment kind of position there possibly is. I'm like a, I'm, I'm, I'm a typical right on the demographic kind of target white dude who just wants to play some freaking halo and call of duty. Like I'm not really worried about what anyone might say to me or whatever. Now, my reason for not 
putting on the headset and talking to strangers because I'm just way too anxious to engage with human beings. So that's a whole different problem. That's my problem. That's a different thing. But, you know, for those people who do want to engage with strangers, who do want to try to make friends online, like, I don't know, we should have a, an environment where everyone can feel safe and comfortable to do so. So I just thought it was cool to uh, to put that out. And, and you know what? For people who, you know, when I was much younger, I didn't care as much. I didn't mind putting on the headset and talking to strangers. I didn't feel uncomfortable doing it. And I remember, shout to Kevin, you know, 2008, Call of Duty World at War. Won't say your last name because I still know you. We're still friends on Facebook and we still talk from time to time online. Shout to Kevin. He's the only friend I ever made complete stranger on Xbox Live, like actual friend I made. Like this isn't like a guy like, oh, my buddy and I were playing and then his friend jumped online and we became friends through a friend. This is like complete stranger lives many, many thousands of miles away from me. We met playing a video game in a public lobby and became friends over that. And I don't know, like that's one like a really, that's a very specific fond memory I have from the Xbox 360 days from like back when I was 13 or whatever. I met this guy named Kevin on Call of Duty World at War and we bonded and we played. It was like one of those like, hey, man, you want to keep playing? Okay, we stayed in the lobby or whatever. And then we jumped over to zombies. We started party chat and whatever. And over time, like I became good. But like, especially like back in like high school, I was good buddies with this with this dude. We talked all the fucking time. We played Call of Duty World at War, Modern Warfare 2. We played Black Ops. We, We bonded over Call of Duty all the time. And I remember like thinking to myself, like, how freaking crazy awesome is it that like, I have a legitimate friend, someone I, I I genuinely appreciate as a friend, who I just met because I was in an Xbox lobby. And then I think about like how many people probably don't have that experience, especially nowadays. Unfortunately, you know, you really don't have that experience because everyone's on Discord or everyone's in a party chat. This is kind of like the early days of party chat where people were still doing a lot of um, private chats or public lobbies. You know, I feel like party chats kind of killed a lot of public chats like it took the serious people out of public chats if that makes sense because then the serious people all got in party chats with people they know in real life but i don't know like back in those earlier wild west years i just remember it being like so cool that i used to chat with strangers all the time and i in fact even made a legitimate friend doing that one time and it's like eh, there's probably a lot of people who don't have that experience because you know if they put on a headset and we're like Hi guys, I'm a girl and I'm playing Call of Duty. Not not even necessarily announcing that you're a girl, but I mean it's pretty hard to hide in your voice that you sound like a female when you're a female. It just is what it is, right? And you put on the headset and you're like, "Hi guys," and people are like, "Female," and then everyone's like Neanderthal brain turns on and is like, "You sound pretty. Send me picture." So I don't know. So I just want to add that little personal anecdote. Thank you for writing, Rebecca. And uh, now that I'm done being the the teacher and being like, "Okay, class." Okay, class, listen up. I'm, I'm here to tell you about my friend Kevin. Kevin is a father now. Can you believe they let him have children? Can you believe they did that class? Anyway, we're moving on. Payday 3 is up next. Deep Silver and Starbreeze have announced that there's an open beta for the upcoming uh, Game Pass title. Um, September 8th through 11th is, a, is the open beta. Anyone can try it out on Xbox or on Steam. And the game will come later in the month for uh, Game Pass Day 1 subscribers. So definitely looking forward to giving that game a go. Looks pretty good. Next up, the head of Diablo franchise appears to have confirmed that Diablo 4 will get a new expansion every year. So far, Blizzard has yet to officially announce any future plans for Diablo 4 expansions. However, in an interview with Dextero, Dex, yeah, Dexerto, uh, Diablo general manager and ex-Gears of War guy slash ex-Xbox guy slash traitor Rod Ferguson, who will come back to Xbox once we buy Blizzard because consolidation is good, made a reference to annual expansions after being asked how long the game will be supported and basically said... 
in in so many words expect an expansion every year or so so diablo's got a long tail ahead of it so finally here annapurna pictures is making an animated movie based on the popular game stray i got nothing else to say that the game finally came to xbox just last month it was really popular last year when it came to playstation and pc and now they're making a movie about it they're making an animated movie about it so whoop-de-doo all right, guys, that is it for all the news this week. Now we can finally move into the juicy shit. It is time for Starfield talk. Let's get into it again. If you've been listening the whole time and all you want to hear is Starfield, I said, I told you, use the timestamps, baby. Use the timestamps. But I'm going to take a quick break here, drink some water, come right back to talk all things Starfield. Okay, you've been patient, you have waited, or maybe you just hit the timestamp and you're skipping here right now. Shame on you, William. Go back and listen to the whole damn thing. Get in line. Now it's time for Starfield. Starfield, Starfield, Starfield. Spoiler alert, I like Starfield a lot. I think this game is good to play, and I played 22 hours of it, and I really like it. That's it. See you next week. Um, No, we'll talk about it in, in greater detail I'm excited to get into this. I'll be honest. I've been thinking about it today, like trying to do my notes and figure out how we're going to talk about this. I I don't know. <laughs> so we're going to be all over the map, which is, I guess, pretty typical for the show. I've got a couple of bullet points I wrote about my impressions, my thoughts, my feelings about the game, things I definitely want to touch on. I got a couple little news tidbits here that we can add in for added context and flavor. And then we got most of this week's listener comments, which surprise, surprise, are about Starfield. So we've got a lot of ways we can tackle this. I say let's just jump in, start hitting it, and then we can go where we need to go, um, you know, based on how how the conversation's evolving. Um, I say conversation as if it's not just me freaking talking to myself. But anyway, real quick. So Starfield, I think most people who are, again, started playing it last Friday on the 1st when the early access came out. In fact, it was said that... um, it was said that the game was hitting top 10 sales charts on Xbox in like the US and UK um, as of last week when the game was a week from being out because so many people were upgrading to the deluxe edition to get that that week early access or the five day early access to the game. So clearly that, that strategy works. We know it has worked really well for games in the past, especially with like some Forza games and things like that. Um, so it's no surprise that this strategy has worked well again for Xbox. I think we're going to continue to see them to see them do this with a lot of their big titles um, into the future because it's a lot of money. And why wouldn't you if people are doing it? Clearly, there's a market for it. So 230,000 concurrent or um, yeah, concurrent players within like the first. What was it again? It was like within the first couple of hours, the game was out in early access on Steam. There was like 230,000 concurrence, despite, you know, the fact that everyone was either a Game Pass subscriber with the $30 upgrade or the $35 upgrade, or they are people who paid $100 for that version of the game. So that's really, really good. Actually, Steam doesn't have Game Pass. So that's that's 230,000 people that just bought the $100,000, sorry, $100,000, no, the $100 edition of the game. So right off the bat, we know there's some kind of early anecdotal sign of success for the game which should be no surprise Bethesda Game Studios games are always really big um, ever since you know Fallout 3 especially I mean Oblivion was pretty big as well I'd say Morrowind and anything before that was a little bit like kind of like nerd culture like successful for how games did at the time but you know those weren't like mainstream games people weren't like gathering around the TV for Morrowind the way they were for Halo 2 back in the day so let's just be honest about it but you know Oblivion was pretty big and then I think 
I think Fallout 3 was like their first mainstream big game. And then Skyrim, like, forget about it. Skyrim was just took the world by storm. People still talk about it all day, every day to this day. And then Fallout 4 was pretty big. A lot of fans say it was somewhat of a letdown, but, I, you know, commercially it did insanely well. And it was received as a pretty good game overall. And so, I mean, takes us to today. We got, Sky, uh, I almost said Skyrim. We got Starfield. It's their next big game. Why shouldn't it do well as well? Um, so we got those little metrics. In fact, yeah, I'll leave that little comment for later. Yeah, in fact, I mean this this game is so important that it is it is pretty much the game that is that is dictating or determining by most people's metrics kind of where Xbox is from here. You know, if this game isn't a massive smash hit console exclusive for the Xbox that makes people on PlayStation go, "Damn, I wish I had that." Then clearly you know, Xbox is in some trouble because Halo Infinite, we all know what happened there. And then before that, it's just Xbox really hasn't had, you know, despite me disagreeing with it, shout out to Gears 5. I thought Gears 5 in 2019 was phenomenal. And all the games in between, the various Forza games we've got, even some of the smaller games, Hi-Fi Rush earlier this year. Honestly, I mean, obviously, consoles thrive off of high-profile, console-exclusive tentpole releases. And in that regard, Xbox just hasn't had a lot of those, like, you know, shake light the world on fire fire type releases and in quite a while. And so there's a lot riding on Starfield to be this kind of savior for the Xbox brand, be this game that makes the whole world envious and go, I I, I got to get an Xbox or I got to subscribe to Game Pass or at the very least, I got to go buy this thing on Steam, you know? And I think that's mostly what this game is going to be. The, the, the problem is it's not 2011 anymore and the year when Skyrim came out and Video game discourse and the the players' expectations of what a video game needs to be has changed drastically. And you look at a game like Starfield, and that was or Skyrim in 2011. That was a bar setting game, like an industry like bar set here type game. The way that I would say since Skyrim, really the only other games to have done something like that would be like Witcher Three, Legend of Zelda, um, Breath of the Wild and Elden Ring. Honestly, like I might be missing one, but in the 12 years, almost 12 years since Skyrim came out, the only games that have kind of like blown people's minds, raised the bar and said, this is the future of gaming. Really? I mean, and maybe I'm leaving out some of the Sony stuff with like God of War 2018 or like The Last of Us, but very different stuff because I'm, I'm referring more to these open world Western style RPGs, although Elden Ring's of course Eastern, uh, but you know what I mean? Like these open world kind of in Zelda's Eastern, those are both Japanese games. You know what I mean? These open world, massive RPG kind of games. And again, I think four years after uh, Skyrim came out, we saw the bar raised with the Witcher three. Nobody saw that coming, put CD project red on the map and they are who they are today because of it. And then, Fast forward two more years, Nintendo blows everyone's minds. Remember, everyone had really low expectations and of Nintendo at the time, and, and Nintendo was kind of in the dumps with the Wii U for about four years and everything, and the, the end of the Wii generation wasn't particularly good for them. And then the one-two punch of, here's Nintendo Switch, here's Zelda Breath of the Wild, lit the world on fire, reestablished the franchise, put Nintendo back on top where they have been most of their, their existence and uh, really shifted this kind of idea of like these open world type adventure experiences. And then, uh, and then I would say last year, Elden Ring did the same thing, came out of nowhere, rewrote the story, rewrote the script on what these kinds of games can be, blew everyone's fucking minds, water cooler moment. And so there's a lot of pressure on all angles 
Bethesda Game Studios hasn't hit the way they hit back in 2012 or back in 2011 uh, with their recent releases, Fallout 4, Fallout 76, um, and, all, and all that stuff. And now there's this added pressure for them to be the savior of the Xbox brand now that they're first party, now that they're owned by Xbox, now that Starfield is going to be an Xbox exclusive. And with all of that added up, I think there is this, and I, I, you know, I don't even need to dwell on this for as long as I already have, because I think everyone listening to this podcast knows damn well what I'm saying, and that it's undeniably true that the amount of pressure put on Starfield to be this, this thing, to be this like next big thing is somewhat unfair. Like it's, it's not unreasonable to think that if anyone's going to create that experience or create that next game, maybe it could be Bethesda game studios. So that's not entirely unrealistic. I mean, they're one of like the top 10 studios. I think most people would probably bet their money on to be that, that the team to make that next game. But it's it's unfair in a way to just to say you have to be the one to do it. And and also, I think before we get into more of the nitty gritty on the game, I have to just kind of put my history of Bethesda games out there because for transparency's sake, because I'm not historically the most qualified Bethesda person. You know, Um, I've been really well aware of Bethesda for a long time. Uh, My my older brother was obsessed with Morrowind back on the OG Xbox. He was even more obsessed with Oblivion when we first got the 360. Actually, um, Elder Scrolls Oblivion was the first Xbox 360 game we ever had. It was the game my older brother got with his Xbox 360 when he brought that console home in 2005. So um, I, I remember very, very well, or no, 2006, sorry, is when we got the 360. So I remember very, very well... Um, having very a, a lot of exposure and, and a very clear introduction to these Bethesda game series types of games. And then in 2008, when Fallout 3 was announced, I was like, I don't like Dungeons and Dragons shit, but I like whatever that is, and I really want to play that game. And I think at the time, I was like, my tiny child adult brain was just like, I, I need more of the instant action. Like, 2008 was the same year as Sonic Unleashed, and Sonic Unleashed is the game from 2008 that I remember more fondly than Fallout 3, just because my tiny child brain needed, like, simple straightforward action fallout 3 was a little too complex i was expecting it to be like open world halo or some shit like that i just didn't i didn't know enough back then to really appreciate the game although i always wanted to i just never got in the game got into the game and then when skyrim came out it was just more of that whole like i don't like that dungeons and dragons shit i don't care but undeniably like every single human being i had contact with it was like it was like covid like skyrim was like covid in 2011 it just spread like crazy everyone was fucking like doing the doing the Skyrim and everyone was getting getting coming down with Skyrim and it was just it was everywhere it was just inescapable you turn on the news it was all they were talking about it was like yeah meteorites headed straight toward earth but have you heard about Skyrim and it was just everywhere and I put that game off forever because I'm just like I don't like that Dungeons and Dragons shit fast forward to 2015 Fallout Fallout 4 comes out I'm in college I'm much older I'm like you know what I know this isn't like, um, hmm, what's a good example? Sea of Stars, we talked about last week. Final Fantasy 16, Final Fantasy 7. There's always been this, like, I wish I could be into these Japanese role-playing games we just talked about at the top of the show. I've always had a very similar feeling with these Bethesda Game Studios games, where I've always been drawn to them. They look really cool. I, I want to know why people are so into them. And when Fallout 4 came out, and I was much older, I was in college, I was like, I'm more than old enough at this point to be able to play one of these games and try to appreciate what it is everyone loves about them. So I got Fallout 4 on opening on launch day. 
I put about 15, 20 hours into the game, and it was by far the closest I ever got to really getting into a Bethesda game. And I thought, this game's pretty good. I'm pretty invested in the main quest. Uh, the game's kind of fun. I have very little interest in anything outside the main quest line. I made it to the very end of the main quest and for some reason got distracted probably by like Tomb Raider or Halo 5 that fall. And then I just never came back to it and finished it. But I really enjoyed the 15 hours or so I pumped into Fallout 4 and thought if I had just stuck with that or I know if I re-downloaded and went back to that game and forced myself to play it, I'd get very into it. I know I liked Fallout 4, but I just fell off of it. I just never came back. And then last year, and this is the last part before we get to Starfield, last year... I finally said, enough of this judging a book by its cover, putting a game off just because I don't like Dungeons and Dragons shit. It's time to download Skyrim and give this game a fair ch fair shot. It is an absolute seminal project product. And, you know, if Bethesda is going to be a part of Team Xbox going forward, I'm going to have to continue to think about these guys, cover them more in depth. And I it, genuinely, I've been interested in Starfield because just in terms of its setting and its idea, like... Fallout, Skyrim in outer space, like, that works for me. I love space sci-fi. My whole life has just been all about fucking Buzz Lightyear and Halo. So, like, I'm all I'm all about this Starfield. I'm like, this is, you know, but Elder Scrolls never did it for me. Fallout kind of did it for me, but I never really quite got it. And then this is going to be it. Starfield is going to be the one. So I, I've, I've been determined for years at this point to make Starfield be the game that works for me. So last year, in preparation for it, I went back. I forced myself to play Skyrim for the very first time. Only played about 15, 20 hours of it just because I was very busy with a lot of games, but I wanted to at least see the Golden Path through. The Golden Path being the kind of video game colloquial term for like the main quest line. I just wanted to see it through, see what it's all about. And yes, I know Skyrim fans, I know the main quest line of Skyrim is not considered the best part of the game. The, the, all the factions, quest lines, and things like that, the Dark Brotherhood, that's all considered. Wait, I get it, I get it. I want to come back and play more, more Skyrim one day, actually. But I played Skyrim for the first time last year. And if you're listening to the podcast at the time, you already know. I was like, wow, I have been such a stupid, sorry little bitch because I've been sleeping on this game for over a decade and Skyrim is phenomenal. The thing about Skyrim is it was like it just it, it, it defined the thing I always felt a little bit with Fallout, but never really could quite put my finger on. And in playing Skyrim last year really solidified the 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 secret sauce to these Bethesda games it's not necessarily the best narrative writing or the most amazing gameplay mechanics. It's not that the combat is so good like in Halo or like the story is so gripping like in The Last of Us or something like that. It's that I don't know what it is and I still can't quite define it, but Bethesda has a way of building worlds that's like I'm invested. I'm in this world. I, I don't know why, but I want to walk around. And I want to talk to people and I want to see what they have to say. And I want to see what options I can engage with. And you guys know me. I'm, I'm the fucking tiny brain Call of Duty guy. I don't I don't want to sit around and explain or explore every crevice and nook and cranny of every game. I want to beeline it. I want to pull up the gun, start shooting some motherfuckers and, and roll some credits. You know, I want to see some explosions. But for some reason, Star, Skyrim, and now we'll get into it, Starfield, are like th these rare games where it's like, I want to stop. And like, just explore the nooks and crannies. I want to talk to this random person and see what they have to say. I want to see if I can get out of a combat scenario. Let me see if I can, if I can weasel my way out of this situation by just persuading this person. I've never been into these kinds of mechanics or features in a game, but Bethesda has some way of building out a world. And earlier this year, I played a little bit of Fallout 76 and I felt the same thing where it's like, I'm not even necessarily playing the main quest. I'm not even necessarily chipping away at progress towards rolling credits, but I'm really enjoying just kind of 
doing shit in this world, exploring places, talking to people, seeing if I can do this thing. I'm not usually pretty creative and inventive with games like that. I don't want to like, oh, I wonder if I could strap this bomb to the bottom of this of this box and make it fly into the air, which would allow me to jump over the fence instead of unlock the key. And then I can be, like, I'm not like Zelda Breath of the Wild. I don't like the cutesy little shit of like, I'm going to build something and break the game. Like, I don't want that. But for some reason, these Bethesda games, as my recent experience has shown, it's like, I'm just really pulled in by like, the world they build and how you can interact with it. So from my experience with, with Skyrim last year, I felt pretty confident going to this year that at the very least, I'm very much going to be enticed by an initial playthrough of Starfield, like the main quest line, or maybe like 20 hours of it or so. Like I'm pretty sure Starfield is going to be a game that resonates with me unless it's completely broken. Unless it's like you turn on the game and it's just Todd Howard holding his cowboy belt buckle with the with a with a finger and a thumb in the shape of an L on his forehead, rest in peace, smash mouth, and like jumping back and forth going, loser, loser, loser. Unless like that's what Skyrim is or Starfield is when you boot it up. Like I'm pretty sure I'm at the very least going to be pretty interested in this game. So well, that brings us to where we are. You, you know my backstory. I'm not the most well-versed Bethesda Game Studios fan. I don't have the most experience and authority to really be like, this is why this game is different from this game or better in this way or worse in this way. I I, I, I can't. I just I don't have the credibility either or the, the, the history to really defend that. But what I can speak to is what I assume a lot of people will be experiencing since it's a Game Pass game and since the new situation with Bethesda and Xbox will garner a lot of new interest in, in, in the team and in these games and just with it being by virtue of this being a new IP and a new setting and a new world, it will, it will gain a lot of attention and eyes from people who maybe have never experienced a Bethesda game studios game. So I guess my interpretation, my commentary on Starfield might speak more to those people than the experienced veteran kind of Bethesda game studios fans, but I'll, I'll try my best to just speak honestly in, in a way that might appeal to all or apply to, as many as I can, but long and short of it, I really like Starfield. Um, I, I this is one of the few games where I really cared about what people were saying, you know, on August 31st, when the embargo broke, I went to Maddie plays on YouTube, saw all of his thoughts and opinions. I know he's a huge Bethesda game studios fan. really was curious what his commentary was on it. Um, so I, I really wanted to see that. And then I just, I, I listened to a bunch of reviews. I, I read a lot of toxic Twitter, trying to see the takes, the way people felt about it. I read a lot of Starfield's Reddit page. I looked at the Metacritic and the, and all, and all that. I just tried to gain a lot of perspective and understanding and just absorb a lot of what people had to say about this game in the 24 hours before I finally had the ability to play it for myself. And quickly what I heard was, is a lot of, and I'm sure you've heard at this point, the game is kind of at, at, at the start. It takes some getting used to. You got to play 10 hours. You got to play 15 hours before it really gets its hooks into you. Or I heard a lot of people say, focus on the main quest. Todd Howard actually said this himself in an interview. He said, focus on the main quest line and then go back and do the other shit. That's when you can start flying around, exploring the planets, doing all the things, collecting all the shit, whatever it is you do in these Bethesda games. But try that main quest first. And I thought to myself, well, that's perfect because that's what I would have done anyway. Knowing myself, I'm always Mr. Like, I want the story. I want the main quest. I want to roll credits because that's the most gratifying thing for me in a video game is doing that like main objective. And so... I was prepared when I started it up on Friday, like, okay, I'm probably not going to like this game very much for the first couple hours. Sounds like it doesn't have a very good start. And 
just just to be fair, I'm not going to spoil anything. I probably should have said this way earlier. I'm not going to spoil anything. I'm going to dance around things because I want to be respectful. I completed the main quest. In the 22 hours I put into the game, I've already completed the main quest. And I'm not going to spoil anything, but I think I have enough experience through the main quest to speak to a lot of aspects of this game, or at least a lot of things I personally care about. And uh, so I'm prepared for it to be slow and not very fun at the beginning. And I got to be honest, I was pretty much grabbed by this game from, from the start. Yes, it's not as cool of a reveal, and I see people say this again and again. It's not as cool as in Fallout, where you you know you start the game, you're in the vault, and then within 20 minutes you open up the vault doors, and it's like whoa! You walk into this beautiful world, and the in the world like invites you to come and explore it. This game does not have that moment. It's very much like you're on like you're in this underground mine, you do this thing, and now you're on this planet, and you're in this little city, and you just kind of set off on this adventure. It's a little anticlimactic. I didn't feel like that was a detriment to my experience. I didn't feel like that was uh, something that I was expecting, that it not being there like really put a damper on my time with the game in the early hours. But again, maybe that is my historical lack of thorough experience with Bethesda Game Studios games speaking. The fact that I wasn't expecting some grand opening or some beautiful open world to be like, come and explore me, Jesse. I spent about an hour in the character creator trying to make my character look as much like Buzz Lightyear from the 20, 2022 Lightyear Pixar movie. And then I named him Buzz Lightyear. And then I realized, oh shit, I just named my guy Buzz Lightyear and I'm inevitably going to have to drink alcohol and shoot innocent people in the face in this game. And I don't want to put that on Buzz Lightyear's name, you know, but oh well, here we go. And I pressed start and instantly right off the bat i'm like okay yeah i saw a lot of footage and a lot of complaints you got this little tool it's kind of like mining for minerals people are calling it no man's sky there's no way this game's gonna be like no man's sky that's a lot of noise ignore that and within like the first mission or so in the game i'm already like okay this is cool you get your first like companion and you're like okay she's interesting okay let's go me and sarah we're on this adventure okay we're doing this thing and Pretty instantaneously, I'm drawn into like this, just this basic conceit. This isn't a spoiler. This is like the back of the box basic conceit. There are these artifacts. You are joining the society of people who are basically curious people who are like, hey, we're all dedicated to the cause of trying to figure out what all is out there. Why are we here? Like, what what do we not know about? What is humanity yet to learn? We want to explore the stars and learn beyond. And we found these artifacts and they're from, some, we, we don't recognize the material they're crafted from or where they came from. And we want to find out more about them. Where do they come from? What are they? What are they capable of? Why, why do they exist? And it's pretty much like your standard sci-fi story, right? It's the, why are we here? There's something bigger than us out there. We got to find, we got to answer the whys and the questions humanity has. And that's the whole impetus for leaving the planet earth, going out to the stars and explain and um, expanding humanity out to the, the solar system and beyond. Right. So it's like kind of a, like a, like a setup that I would kind of expect from a space sci-fi game, especially an open world adventure. I'm like, all right, I'm on board. You know, the thing that's really different about this game right off the bat that coming off of Skyrim last year and playing this game is like the writing is so much better. Like every moment it still has that Bethesda style of writing where like you press a on a character and then like the camera kind of like locks and pans on them. And then you got like the options on the bottom and you're engaging with the character and all that. So it looks and feels just like any Bethesda game, but the quality of the writing and more and the, the delivery of the lines and the acting from the voice actors, shout out to voice actors. Let's pay them better. <laughs> and, um, 
and just every everything about the moment to moment like storytelling. It's not that like it's not that it looks more cinematic, you know, it's not like The Last of Us where it's like, oh, I'm playing a movie. I'm not playing a game. I'm playing a movie. No, it doesn't look more cinematic. It doesn't. It's not something I think we need to immediately adapt into an HBO series or put on the silver screen. It's okay. Sometimes a video game can just be a video game. But I'm immediately feeling that kind of Skyrim feel of like, I just, I just like this world. I want to hear what this NPC has to say. I want to see if maybe I can talk my way out of the situation instead of shoot my way out of the situation. I'm just immediately engrossed just like I was in uh, Skyrim. The only difference is now the game's a lot more modern looking, feels a lot more modern. The writing feels better. The acting feels a lot better. And we're in space instead of in the Dungeons and Dragons, Knights and Elves, Orcs and Thieves world. And so I'm far more invested in what all could be in this world because now we've got Buzz Lightyear out here, motherfuckers. So I, I got to say, I, I see a lot of people saying the whole early hours of the game not good. In fact, let's go to our first comment here. Uh, Mr. Mike Clark write, writes in and says, is Todd Howard this generation's Peter Molyneux? Um, I played 12 hours of Starfield and I quit. I don't hate it, so calm down, but I found it boring. We'll revisit, but I'm not sure it hasn't grabbed me in the way I'd hoped. Uh, also says, sucks all the Rockstar OGs have hung it up. Hopefully, uh, hopefully it turns out better than Rare and Bioware. So true that. Um, but yeah, thanks for writing in, Mike. Uh, uh, Mar- Sorry, thank you for writing in, Mike. Uh, but yeah, I think this is a good jumping on point because this is so much of the initial, this is the criticism I'm seeing that I'm like, there is something to this. People are having this experience and just because I didn't have it doesn't mean it's not legit or valid, but this seems to be an, a, a criticism many people are levying against the game and it it must be said. I was instantly grabbed, but again, I was instantly focused on role-playing this RPG Buzz Lightyear and mainlining the story and getting deep into that as soon as possible. My understanding, or from what I can tell, it seems like a lot of people who are like, let's make a character, let's get a spaceship, and let's go out to the stars and start flying around and exploring. Those are the people walking away saying, I'm a little disappointed. Or the game's not grabbing me yet. And I think I can understand. And to get into that a little more, let's go into, um, let's go into, yeah, let's go into this. So this is a, a bullet point I wrote where I said, a lot of people's gripe with the game is the uh, is the lack of a proper or full space travel experience, a la No Man's Sky, because that's the game most people keep describing or or comparing this to. It's like it's like Elder Scrolls No Man's Sky, right? And here's the thing: is a lot of people are sad because or disappointed, and maybe rightfully so. Although it was never explicitly advertised, it's just an assumption we all had, myself included. So to be fair, I assumed it was this way too. That when you got a spaceship in this game, it would be like hop into your spaceship take off, fly out, get out of the planet. Now you're in now you're in the solar system. Pick a planet you want, fly to it or use your hyperdrive and leave the solar system and go find another solar another another planetary system and go explore all the planets and get lost out there in outer space. You can hop from a planet into a ship, fly yourself off the planet and explore the system, the the, the star systems. And that was my expectation, that was a lot of people's expectation and instantly a lot of people were disappointed to learn that that's not how space travel works in this game. And my immediate reaction following five hours with the story mode with the, with the game was like, I can understand why people are disappointed because that is, I think what a lot of people would want. If you said, hi, I'm making an elder scrolls game, but it's an outer space. It's like a sci-fi space game. A lot of people would be like, Oh my God. So I can explore the stars in a spaceship like you do in, in freaking, in freaking Skyrim or, or Fallout, like the Wasteland, but now it's outer space. 
that's where everyone's mind goes to. But because this game touts the 1,000 explorable planets, and because, and, and you learn this as you play the main quest, because the story and the questing and, and the locations in this game have you constantly jumping from one system to another, from one planet to another, constantly. It will literally be like, fly to this planet, find this person, talk to them. Have a really good conversation, and then get use that information to fly over to this planet and talk to that person. My only thought is, if the game was like, oh, I need to go buy parts to repair my ship. Let me hop into my my ship and fly to this planet so I can buy those parts. Okay, I bought those parts. You know what? I'm going to go talk to so-and-so over on this planet. Hop in your ship, fly your ship over, and then there would be a lot of dead space. It would be a lot of like, I am just flying my ship out here in the stars, going from one planet to another, and it would get a little boring fast. It would be a lot of padding. And that's speaking purely from an objective-based standpoint, like playing playing through a quest line or something. I know a lot of people, they don't care about the quest line. They just want to jump in the ship, go out and dick around in outer space and explore and play around. I get that. But I can't help but feel like that is so counterintuitive to what Bethesda does best, which, yes, there is exploration. That should be rewarded. I think about like, like Skyrim, where you could just be walking around out in the middle of nowhere and then find some cave and be like, I wonder what this is. And you walk into the cave and you find like a, a little mini dungeon and there's like good loot in there and some satisfying combat encounters and things like that. And you're like, okay, that's just a little thing that exists in this world. And that was really fun to just walk upon, like discover and fall upon and, and do that. And people want that kind of feeling and experience in outer space, flying around, discovering planets. And I understand that. But I think if they did that, the game would be way too big. And you would find that traveling from planet to planet this this way that people expected to do, be able to do so would just be a lot of padding and a lot of dead space in between action and things happening. And people would actually get bored with it. Now, maybe that just comes to a philosophical uh, design point with the game where you could say, well, maybe what they should have done was made, made Starfield one solar system with like a set of eight planets and then you can do the no man's sky thing within that solar system. You're jumping from planet to planet to planet, but you can just get in your ship and fly from one to another. And that would condense the, the game into a much tighter package. And then you would have a much more like satisfying loop of like flying your ship, flying from planet to planet, and also exploring planets. And to that point, I say, maybe you're onto something. I think about like my favorite recent game where you can just hop in a spaceship and fly off the planet into the into the into the stars and just head to your next planet from there which is starling battle for atlas which came out in 2018 the ubisoft developed game that game did not get enough praise at all but that game's actually awesome it does the no man's sky thing of just hop in your ship fly off the planet no load screens or anything just fly to the next planet but the difference between starlink and no man's sky is starlink is an action packed action adventure type game um where every second of gameplay is super fun. You're on you're on on a planet and you're fighting enemies, you're shooting around, although you're always in your ship, you never get out of your ship. And then you fly out into outer space and then you're doing really fun arcade style dogfighting combat and then you fly to another planet, but everything's close enough in proximity that it feels like between outer space and all the planets you can explore, it feels like one open world instead of a massive interlocking system of different system star systems, planetary systems. It's just one solar system. It's just one set of planets. And I'm like, well, if they could have created something kind of like how 
Starlink Battle for Atlas did it between hopping between planets and going out in outer space where you could kind of fast travel and stuff too there. I feel like that would have been a good in-between. But playing through the main campaign, 20 hours straight of just the main story content, I, I realized like if this game was what people wanted with just being able to hop in a ship and fly anywhere all the time, it would have just been a lot of a lot of nothingness. It would have just been a lot of like, oh my God, so I made it all the way to this planet. All I had to do was talk to this one person and now I got to go back into my ship, fly out into the stars and just fly to another ship. I'm just burning time. We're just padding the game at that point. So I, I think for the way Bethesda games typically work, what they ended on makes more sense. But I can see why that was a disappointment for a lot of fans and a lot of uh, it, players anticipating what they thought Starfield would be versus what it ended up being. So the way it actually works is that you get off a planet, time to go fly to another planet, you go to your ship, you can either go into the ship and walk around the ship and explore and there are things you can do on your ship, or you can just go straight to the cockpit and then open up your star system map, you pick the planet you want to go to, you pick the landing zone within the planet you want to go to, and you just fast travel to it. Once you once you fast travel to that planet or that system or whatever, it puts you like in front of the planet from the outside, like you're in your ship and you can come across enemies and you can like dock different enemy ships and you can take their ships over or you can engage in dogfighting combat. It's really cool. Like that stuff is really good, but you can't just like fly from Earth to Mars or something like that. It's like you pick Mars, you fast travel to Mars, then you're right outside Mars and you can kind of explore around it a little bit and then you highlight Mars and you're like, here's the landing zone I want to land on click. And then it's like a loading screen and then you land on Mars. So it's not like seamless. Like I got in my ship on earth. I flew out into the stars and then I flew over to Mars and then I landed on the planet wherever I felt like it. And then I explored. It's not like that. It's like, you got to pick a land. Uh, you got to pick a landing site. You got to watch a loading screen. It's a lot more like a glorified fast travel system with some space action exploration in between. So you pick where you want to teleport to, essentially, and then you can do some dogfighting. You can do some, uh, like, rock avoiding or, like, like find a satellite and, and take a distress call or find a stranded ship and help him out or find a bad guy and fight him and then board his ship and then kill the captain and take over their vessel as your own. You can do all that stuff. But it's not this seamless hop in, go anywhere, any way you want. And that's a huge disappointment to a lot of people. And on paper, that would be a disappointment to me. But when you see how the game plays out, I think that the system people are looking for, that No Man's Sky style system, might actually just be a padding, nothingness, kind of boring, empty, just, I don't know. It would be like if Grand Theft Auto was like, yeah, sure, you can drive around the city from building to building, from objective to objective, but in the new Grand Theft Auto, we got the American highway system, and now you can get on, you can get on the U.S., the U.S. 75, and take it all the way from this state over to this state. It's like, no, because then then it's like, what would you do on the road trips between states? It's like, yeah, it's cool. I can hop, hop in the car and drive from one place to another, but like, what would you do on the road trip, you know? Oh, you can come across a bandit and have a Mad Max style combat system where you can pull over and find a guy whose car broke down and then hold him at gunpoint and, and, and steal all this shit. You know, it's like, cool, that stuff's fun, I guess, when it happens. But like, do you really want to play a Grand Theft Auto game where you hop in a car and you drive from from California to Nevada and it takes you like 30 minutes to drive there or something like it's not very fun. And you could add things along the way to to gamify it and make it a little more interesting 
But that's not, you know, and that's the problem is I think so many people got hung up with Starfield with this idea that like, let's let's continue with the car analogy in the US. It's like, oh yeah, Starfield's gonna be like hopping in your car and you can drive from Los Angeles to Chicago. And it's like, okay, well maybe exploring Los Angeles is really interesting and compelling. And maybe exploring Chicago is really interesting and compelling because these are big city hubs with tons to explore, do characters to interact with buildings that house different objectives and places and things. And there's so much to see and do, but the drive from Los Angeles to Chicago is going to be boring as fuck. It's a glorified route 66 vacation simulator. It wouldn't, it sounds cool, but hey, how many of you guys are hotly anticipating the new Ubisoft's The Crew game? Because that's what The Crew is. It's a it's a freaking road trip simulator with a little bit of racing, with a little bit of like arcade racer in it. And not to say there isn't a market for those games, not to say that can't be fun, but it is to say that that's not what Bethesda was going for. Bethesda is very much building, what they built with Starfield here is another Bethesda Game Studios game. It is... The next generation of, of Skyrim is the next generation of Fallout. That's what Starfield is. And it's under the guise of this big space exploration game. And don't get me wrong, you can explore. You can you can go to planets that have a ton of things to do. You can go to planets that have dick to do. You can go to a random-ass planet that's not a part of any objective, land on it, and be like, wow, the creatures are harsh here. They're hard to fight. Uh, there's some resources I can mine if I want, but there's nothing to see or do here. There's no buildings, there's no cities, there's no people, it's just barren. And you can do that in this game, but what's way more fun than that, in my opinion, is exploring the places where there is, like, a, a city center and things to interact with and quest lines to accept and, and all that. So the exploration is there, but it's more like, what if Skyrim, but loading screens from destination to destination, but, like, you're always fast traveling, essentially. And I think that's a huge sticking point for people. It's a huge thing that's knocking this game. But I think once you play it, you kind of understand why it can't be that thing people want it to be. Fair criticism, if it's what you were expecting, if it's what you wanted, and if the game doesn't deliver on that, then it's, listen, it's like, hey, it's not for me because this is what I wanted, this is what the game isn't. Okay, but you got to judge and accept the game for what it is and not what it isn't. And in this case, I think the decision is odd. Don't get me wrong. It does feel weird sometimes traveling from planet to planet and being like, the game is so immersive and I'm let free to do whatever I want once I'm on a planet, but traveling between planets, it feels limiting. It's like fast traveling with some space combat, but when you're on a planet, it's like a full fledged Bethesda game. Go nuts, explore, do crazy shit, find weird quest lines to go engage in, Go take out an outpost, kill some guy, take his uniform, whatever you want to do. All the weird Bethesda stuff you could think to do, you can do it. So I think that's the, the big sticking point. It's that it takes a long time for the game to get good for people, and the space exploration is not quite what people expected. Again, I jumped in and spent 20 hours straight just beelining the main quest line. And so what I was focused on was the storytelling, the characters. The, the narrative development, how good the writing was, the really compelling missions. And from that standpoint, it's got to be said, man, Starfield is a, it's not a step up from what Fallout 4 and Skyrim do with their questing. It is a giant fucking leap forward into the future. These missions are phenomenal. Like there are times, and, and, and we haven't even gotten to the combat. Like this game's combat is really damn good. It's not amazing, but at its best, it's like, 
it's like B tier destiny combat. Like the, the combat feels like it's what if Bethesda tried destiny when you're in these firefights and like towards the end of the campaign, like there are some missions where it just, it just straight up feels like you're playing destiny and like for the better, not for the worse. And like, I'm having so much fun with the combat in this game. And you're just running around fucking sliding and shooting motherfuckers with these crazy weapons. And it's really freaking cool. And I'm so engrossed in this combat, in these characters, and where the story's headed. Side note, the freaking romances. Listen, guys, I know a lot of you are playing this game. Don't any you motherfuckers try to romance Andresia. She's my girl. If I find out any of you have been looking at her, trying to romance this girl, I will, I, will, I will come through the speakers of your phone or whatever you're listening to this podcast via, and I will, I will strangle you like Homer Simpson to Bart Simpson. I will stop you. That is my girl. You leave Andresia alone. I think I just said her name. And Andresia? I don't care. I love her and she's mine. And like joking aside, it's like, I'm, I'm like super invested in this game. There were some of these characters like, I'm like, Barrett, you are my guy. You're my friend. I, I care about you deeply. I will take care of you. I will look after you. And like, Andresia is my girl. Like, I, I, I need to romance this woman. And like Sarah, thanks, but no thanks. You're fine. But you do have a British accent and you're cool anyway. And like really compelling stuff like this whole I forget the guy's name, actually. The the wealthy guy, the kind of, like, philanthropist guy that's, like, funding your your group, essentially. Like, you go to the neon, the neon planet, which I won't say anything beyond that, other than just, like, it's so fucking cool. Like, it just feels like you, you totally step outside. Like, there, there's the one planet you go to that's, like, the country mining kind of western planet. And it feels like Fallout a little bit. Then you go to Neon, and it's like, this is freaking cyberpunk over here. And it's so cool. And it's like, there's this kind of, like, like, commentary almost in this game where it's, like, you're playing this overarching narrative and this overarching thing this game has about like this very large world and this this story about humanity trying to explore the stars and trying to and trying to figure out the whys of why we're here and who we are and our place in the world and everything. This like story that's like literally bigger than God in a way. And then like you explore like these planets along the way, like Neon, where it's this like crime ridden, like just capitalism run amok, kind of just seedy disgusting world built like run by crime and drugs and in corrupt corporations and things like that. And it's kind of crazy because in a way it's like an exaggerated kind of Gotham city esque play on like the worst parts of the real world that we live in, that we witness on a day to day basis. But in our world where like, this is such a real world, big scale, huge problem. It feels so small in the world of Starfield because this is one place on one planet that you can explore in addition to many other places on many other planets. And when you compare that to the larger narrative at hand, where you can have so many adventures, you can have so many stories on neon involving these corrupt figures, these crime syndicates, these corporations and all this crazy stuff, you know that that's just a small sliver and just a small time problem in instead of stories to be experienced in this way faster and grander scale narrative that's all about our place in the world and what all is out there and what are these what are these artifacts and where do they come from what does that mean and these aren't human is there is there like what kind of life is there out there and it's just it's like that's that those are like the questions and typical space sci-fi stuff yeah sure criticism fine but just because that that trope's been done before doesn't mean that starfield doesn't do it effortlessly and, and, and skillfully and with with a really compelling take on the matter and it's so good to have that kind of juxtaposition of like oh man like the like the, 
in any other Bethesda game or in any other open Western RPG world, like these, these, these cities alone would be these big places worth exploring. And, and it, like, that would be the game. Like neon would be the game, but in Starfield, that's just one of many, many places and, and, and its significance and its role in the narrative and the overarching theme of the game is so small compared to what all the game can be because everything's bigger. It's about way more than the political structure. It's about way more than, than like the than like the way of living and the social aspects. It's about the philosophical stuff, the spiritual, the religious stuff, like people's ability to wrap their brains around the world they know and how they know it. And it's like in the game gets into that shit. And it's like, I'm sorry, we can sit on here on Twitter all day and bitch and moan about eh, the game takes 20 hours to get good or like oh, PlayStation's better because they have Spider-Man and eh, I hate Xbox. Like we can we can have those conversations if we want to be giant man children, but like when you focus on the the main quest and the story and you get engrossed in like what's happening, what this game is truly trying to say to you and what this team over at Bethesda has crafted for you to experience, it's like, this is some next level shit. Like, I, I don't care about the rest. Everything else, you, you want to know what? The game is bogged down by really really menial freaking obnoxious menus it can be really confusing especially in the early hours of the game to figure out how to navigate these menus and how to travel from planet to planet and and just interfacing with some things is really cumbersome and obtuse and it's like come on we got to get a little better about this game this game is full of systems on top of systems that are a little over the, over the top and cumbersome and the only reason i feel like i have any grip on them is because i stayed so focused on trying to learn this game but like that stuff it's not that those aren't problems. It's not that these aren't things worth addressing on the game. And it's not that the game shouldn't be um, criticized and held accountable because of these issues. But it is that when you take the time to explore what this game is trying to say and experience its main attraction, which is this golden path, this main quest line, a lot of those problems fade into the background because the highs of this game are so damn high and the lows kind of become not that big a deal when you realize it's like I've been upset a lot of people I think are upset about Starfield because it's not the game they wanted it to be or the game that they expected it would be but when you when you forget about that for a second and you experience what they actually built out what they want you to experience with this game it's like this is something very different and it's very good this is very much a um and I think this is true of all Bethesda games but in particular this one where it's it's a journey not the destination kind of game and the way you in the way you interact with and experience this this the journey you go on experiencing this world they built for you and when you experience it the way they're trying to get you to experience it i think it's something absolutely just top notch honestly in terms of its its campaign its its main quest line its story i don't think i've enjoyed a game or been moved by a game or just really been compelled by a game um, to this extent and in this way since Red Dead Redemption 2. Like, honest to God, it's been five years. Red Dead Redemption 2 is the last game that resonated with me on a narrative uh, level the way this game has. Now, I think Red Dead Redemption on the whole is probably still a better game, but we don't need to go comparing apples and oranges, Starfield versus Red Dead Redemption. It's It, it doesn't need to happen. But I, I genuinely think that this is, or for me at least, this is the first game since Red Dead Redemption 2 to go, okay, bar risen. But I'm a big I'm a big fan of first person shooting and good storytelling. And this game does a really good job at both of those things. It's got really competent first person shooting, which is a crazy thing to think of considering it's made by the guys that make Fallout, and it's got a really amazing storytelling and world building and characters and and just interactions and all of it's so good. 
And so when I experienced that, the level and the quality uh, that I, that I did with these 22 hours in Starfield, I, I just can't help but be like, this game's got problems. It's not a 10 out of 10. And I can understand the 87 or so on Metacritic, which is shout out to me. I got this right. I said the game was going to get an 86 on Metacritic. I think it's score right now is at an 87. So I was pretty close to, I was, I was like on the money basically. So shout out there, little pat on the back, but yeah, maybe, maybe the game is an 87. It doesn't fucking matter. I know people want to boil everything down to, to like the nothingness, like the numbers and that have nothing. They People love to strip nuance from conversations and just have these mind numbingly stupid, like battles of like, I promise you, Spider-Man 2 is probably going to be like a 90 to a 92 on Metacritic. I'm just telling you right now. It's probably going to be like a 90. My guess is like 92, 93 on Metacritic. Great. But you know what the difference is going to be? Is Spider-Man is going to be a fantastic game. I can't wait till the day I, I finally play it, waiting for it to come to PC. It's going to be a great game. I cannot wait. I love Miles Morales. Love Spider-Man 2018. That's great. Spider-Man 2 on PS5 is going to be a sequel to Spider-Man 2018. It is going to be... The same game, but expanded outward. New ideas, new locations, new missions, new story. It's going to be really good. I'm sure it's going to be an incredible 20-hour game. I can't wait to play it. But at the end of the day, it's going to be a sequel to Spider-Man 2018. Starfield gave me an experience I've never had in the game. And maybe if you're a longtime Bethesda game fan, you're saying, Jesse, that's just because you're kind of new to Bethesda. Like, this is... This, this really isn't their best work. I don't know. Maybe you feel that way. But I've played enough Skyrim to say I've enjoyed Skyrim thoroughly, and, I've, and, I, and, I've, and I've, I've seen enough of the game to say I know what its storytelling is like, and I've played enough of Fallout 4 to say I've seen what that game's storytelling is like. I have never played a Bethesda game or really any game that made me think and feel the way Starfield did. It's, it's very unique. And for that alone, you can complain about it runs at 30 frames per second. You complain that you can complain that so the character models in this giant open world game don't look as good as the character models in this linear God of War game or whatever the fuck we want to bitch and moan about and throw our shit at the wall like little monkeys about. I don't care because the quality of the experience I had playing this game for 22 hours through this campaign, this main quest line was phenomenal. And I haven't experienced a game that has moved me and made me think and feel the way this game did since Red Dead Redemption 2, five years ago. And I think that's worth something. And it's not because I'm an Xbox podcaster and an Xbox fan, and this is an Xbox first-party game, and I'm personally invested in my console war, and I need my green team to beat the blue team. It has nothing to do with that. It just simply has to do with I had an amazing time playing Starfield, and I... I have a deeper appreciation for Bethesda. I have a deeper appreciation for what video game storytelling can be because I experienced this game. I always very much appreciate high quality storytelling in games. I don't think every game needs to be like that, but this game made me think a lot because about, because I was, I was thinking about how like it, it, unfortunately it's kind of shitty. It's hard to, it's hard to keep Starfield's conversation removed from the fact that this is going to be held against Xbox as like their best effort for the longest time and, and the, the comparison will always be there well god of war ragnarok did this and spider-man 2 did this and horizon new new whatever the new horizon game is called freaking forbidden west did this and i know it's going to be compared even though it's always going to be apples to oranges because these games are nothing alike but if we're going to do that i gotta say i appreciate that sony has in a lot of their first party games these next level untouchable god tier cinematic movie like cinematics character animation art styles graphics that just make the game feel like you are playing a movie it's unique it's something that sony's teams do really well and i think they're probably the best of the best at just creating a game that 
feels like you are playing a movie. And that's great. And there's a lot of merit to that. Starfield is nothing like that. When you play Starfield, it does not move and pan and look like you are playing a movie. Because sometimes you're playing Starfield and a massive cinematic is happening. Not even a cinematic because there's no cinematics. It's just, it's all in-game. And a massive in-game moment is happening, something really important. And in the background, you'll just hear your companion just to say, when you have a second, I need to tell you something. It's like some guy will be like, I'm going to reveal what exists at the center of the... And this is... I'm making this up because I'm not spoiling the game. I'm going to reveal what exists at the center of the universe. You're talking to a bad guy. And he's like, you you humans want to know uh, where we come from and why we are here. Let me reveal to you. And then, like, your companion will just be like, Jesse, when you are done, I need to talk to you about something. And then you talk to your guy and he's like, I meant to give this to you. And it's like... Barrett handed you 3,000 credits and you're like, great, awesome. Now's not the time for that. Like, it's not cinematic like a game like God of War or The Last of Us. It's not this game that I think every film person that scoffs at video games and thinks that video games are for kids will be like, oh, I was wrong about video games. You need to play this. No, but it is engrossing and engaging and in a, from a storytelling perspective, in a way that no movie could be. And I think that's the strength of games like this. The more and more I think about it, because I know there's so much, there's so much like energy from like the Xbox community to be like, when are we going to get our third person narrative driven game? That is, that is like the last of us. That's like, it's like a movie, but a video game. And then HBO can make a respectable series about it. And then maybe the movie buffs will, will appreciate and acknowledge us. Like we don't, those games are great. And I welcome a game like that on Xbox. Sure. I'll take one. Because I like God of War 2018. I like The Last of Us. Don't get me wrong. And I always say that Quantum Break, one of my favorite Xbox One games, is basically one of those. And people don't appreciate it for what it is. But it's basically, in my opinion, like a better version of those kinds of games anyway. Fine. That's all fair and honest. But a game like Starfield is capable of engrossing you in a world and telling a story and engaging you in, in, a, in a world in a way that a game like Quantum Break, a game like The Last of Us, could never. Because the, the player agency and the way these characters are written, and the way your choices impact things, and the way you can react to things, it's entirely up to you. I, I literally, I, I died, there was a, towards the end of the game, there was a very big battle that I kept dying at, I played the game on normal difficulty, and there was a battle that I kept dying at, and it blew my fucking mind after I kept reloading my save to try and beat this battle, that after like the third or fourth try, I could just fucking weasel my way out of this critical point in the story. And the, the outcome took a totally different turn because I said, let me stop trying to fight these guys that I keep dying at and let me try to steer the conversation somewhere else. And the guys had a completely different reaction because I decided to talk to them instead of fight them. And I know that happens in Skyrim and I know that happens in Fallout. But the quality of the storytelling and the quality of the writing and the quality of the character development in this game paired with that kind of player agency and how it can impact the game was one of those moments for me when I'm like, yeah, I think, I think that's worth more in a way, right? Than like a super cinematic, it's like a movie, but you're playing it like a video game kind of experience. Because while there's a place for all of them, and I, I, I appreciate and welcome all the kinds of games like that, I'm like, this is really taking advantage of what a video game can be. We can try to make games look as movie-like and as professionally done and as clean and crisp and realistic as possible. And that's really impressive to do on its own. But Or we can try to make a game do things that movies can't do. And this, this, like, we all know, books can, books can tell stories in ways that movies can't. Movies can tell stories in ways video games cannot. 
Video games can tell stories in ways that movies and books cannot. And if you need an example of what I mean by that, play a game like Starfield. And that is why I'm not impressed with this game or I'm not pleased with it. I think it's a pretty good game. That is why I'm enamored with Starfield. And also like 13 year old me that sat there watching E3 2008, wishing to God I could play Fallout 3 and appreciate it and ultimately ended up not getting into the game. Finally feels vindicated that I like, finally I found one of these games that it's not like Skyrim where I'm like, that's a pretty good game. I was sleeping on a good game or not a game like Fallout 3 where I'm like, I want to like this game, but I'm not getting into it. It's just not clicking for me. Finally, I found one of these games that really works for me. Like, I'm I'm a Starfield believer. I played 22 hours and beat the main quest line, and you know what I'm going to do when I'm done recording this podcast this weekend for fun? I'm going to play a lot more Starfield. I'm going to do so much more. I would be shocked if I put anything less. You know, I was playing Persona 5 a couple months ago, right? And I was like, I want to play this game, but I cannot commit to a game that's asking for 100 hours of my life just to see the main quest line through. Starfield could be 100 hours, and I wouldn't give a shit. And I would be shocked if I don't put at least 100 hours into this game when all is said and done. And that's a lot for me. I know a lot of people put like hundreds of hours, thousands of hours into these Bethesda games. I know that's common for fans of the ser- of, of, of these types of games. But for me, that's not very common. I don't usually stay on a game for that long. But I could easily see myself put 100 hours into Starfield. And I would be shocked if you tell me that by by this time next year, you know, it's like I haven't put at least 100 hours in Starfield. I'll be pretty damn surprised because... I'm, I'm very into this game. I'm really excited to see how I can engage with the game and play with the game outside of the main narrative now that I'm done with that. Um, so, dude, sh- just shout out to this game. The progression is, is addicting. It's really cool. Um, you, you rank up like you do in other Bethesda games. You level up. You get skill points. You can distribute them. But when you unlock a new skill, there's, like, challenges you have to do with those skills in order to, like, lock them into place. So it makes the leveling system take a little longer to get these different skills. So you're not, like, OP by the midpoint of the game. Um, by the end of the game, I was like only level 15 and I still had many, many, many skills. I was still interested in unlocking. So I still have a lot of things I'm going to play around with there. Um, yeah, the combat, let's get into that a little bit. So the game, the, let's talk about combat and performance together. Cause I think that matters. So yes, the game runs at 30 FPS. I played it almost exclusively on my series X. I downloaded on my series S with the intention of playing it there a little bit as well, just to test. And, um, my series S just kept saying like, oh, the, the save file hasn't synced. Are you sure you want to play? It'll probably delete some of your progress. I was like, I'll fuck with that later. I don't want to risk it. So I, I, I haven't played on my Series S yet, although what I hear is that it runs pretty much just as good on Series S as it does Series X. So I played everything on Series X, and I got to say, 30 FPS, not a problem for this game. These games, these Bethesda games, they are a little slower um, and less like twitchy than a game like freaking Call of Duty. So there's a little bit more of like a pass, I guess, for like, it running at 30 instead of 60, but I do gotta say, <clears throat> I felt I fell victim to the fake outrage online with this one, where I was like, "This game's gotta be 60 FPS. You cannot put this on Series X and be six, be anything less than 60 FPS." And and the fact of the matter is, this game is so big, it's so ambitious that I think when you play it, you very quickly realize you're like, "I see why this game is 30 FPS and not 60," and I understand. And it's not a hindrance. It stays at a solid 30 FPS. And Bethesda Game Studios worked with id Software on like some some like motion smoothing um, technology to make the 30 FPS appear a little bit smoother when you're like shifting the camera around and stuff. So it's like a very very for whatever you know for what it's worth, it's a very smooth 30 FPS. Um, <clears throat> so for me, it really wasn't a problem. Definitely, I did experience very rare instances 
of some frame rate dip, and it's usually at weird moments. It's not like when combat's intense and there's like 10 enemies on screen. It was always like when like the level up um, toast is popping up on the screen or like when like some object is animating during a, during a quest or something like that. It was never like, it's never like, damn, I'm in the middle of a firefight and my, my frame rate is dropping and chugging. Like that never happened. And like, I definitely saw like, few little instances of screen tearing. So it's not like the performance is beautiful. And then just to talk about like aesthetically, like the, ga the game's not, the game's a mixed bag aesthetically. There are some environments you'll walk into and you're like, this is jaw droppingly beautiful. And then there's some environments you walk into and it's like, why is the grass so like untextured and bland looking? Like it's not even like draw distance stuff. It's like stuff that I'm near. Like, so like the, the, I found environments to be like a complete mixed bag. And then like character models were also a little weird where it's like, a lot of character models looked really, really good for a Bethesda game. Like you just like talking to a character and you're like zoomed in, you see their face and you have like the dialogue options. In fact, I had one glitch, very few glitches in this game, but I had one glitch early in the game where I talked to Sarah in my party and the game like way over zoomed into hers to where it was just basically her nose and her mouth and her cheeks taking up the entire fucking screen. It was really funny. But um, during that glitch, I was like, oh my God. I was like the amount of detail in these character models, it's wasted because like you don't even notice when it's not this close zoomed in, but you can see like the little like peach fuzz on her face and like the dimples and like the, all like the, like the detail, like on a real human face, it looks so good. And then some characters who are less important to the game, they look pretty, pretty good. Not, not amazing or anything. So I feel like aesthetically <clears throat> the performance, the presentation, the game is, definitely good enough. And when you, when you play a game that's this ambitious on your Xbox series console, you'll go, okay, that's, that's why it's not 60 FPS. Yeah. Other games that are more linear and narrative driven can run at a higher frame rate, but this game is massive and expansive. If there's one gripe I have about performance and things like that, it's not the way the game looks or feels because those departments, it's great. It's the number of loading screens. This game has a lot of loading. And I don't I never found really any of the loading to be too bad. It's you know, it's it's you know, it's pretty quick loading, but it's a lot of loading screens. Like you can go from one planet to another, it'll be like it'll be like go to your ship. Okay. Enter in the ship, go pull up the star system menu, click on a planet, okay, jump to that solar system, load screen. All right, now select a pull up your menu again, select the planet you want to land on, fast travel to it. Okay, loading. All right, now click a point of interest or a city or part of this planet you want to land your ship on. Okay, click that one. All right, land. All right, loading screen. Now you're on the planet. It was like a lot of that stuff. And the menus are super obtuse, just as a side note. Like, you'll be like, I need to pull up my, my map system. It's like, okay, you press the back button. All right, now here's the inventory. No, you want to go to the map. And then here's the smaller map. Then you back out. Here's the bigger map. Back out again. All right, here's the even bigger map. It's just lots of menus to wait to, to like go through and things like that. Um, so th that stuff, I think it's just the cumbersome menus and the constant loading. I think that stuff is a little bit egregious. Um, and I wish there's more of a, um, solution to that, but I think because it's like you're constantly fat, the game is essentially fast traveling constantly to different open world environments. And that's why it's load screens. Whereas uh, as opposed to like, if it were like no man's sky, it's like, well, you're just flying from one planet over to another. So when you leave a planet, the system unloads that information and loads the information towards where you're flying to. So it's not like that. It's just literally like hard old school, fast travel load screens, essentially. Um, so that's a little, you know, whatever, but the combat is really good. Like I said, it's kind of like B tier destiny. 
And in a good way, like, it, it doesn't feel as good, you know, almost nothing feels as good as Bungie's shooting mechanics, but it feels like they're trying to, like, like Destiny was the inspiration, and they tried to go for that kind of a, a combat a little bit, that FPS combat, and there are some times in this game, multiple occasions, where I had to stop and I'd be like, I'm playing a Bethesda Game Studios game. This just feels like a straight-up first-person shooter. I can't believe this is a, a Bethesda game, but the combat feels really good. Um, I mostly stuck to shooting because it felt good and it was fun, but, um, yeah, I mean, like, I don't know. Like, shout-out shout out to the combat in this game. I can't. We've come a long way from Fallout 3. I know people really love the VAT system, but, like, keep in mind, wasn't the whole point of VATs in Fallout 3 because, like, Bethesda's engine was so dog shit at first person shooting that they had to come up with a way to make it possible for you to even aim in the first place. So like we've come a long way from that. And I know a lot of people have grown attached to vats and like that kind of thing. Like that's fallout. Let's let Starfield be like Starfield and let fallout be like fallout. Fallout can have vats. Starfield can feel like, um, like destiny inspired FPS combat because it's pretty damn good at it. And when you get like some more skills, like you get the sliding skill and you unlock your jetpack skill and all these things. And you're like jetpacking around and popping enemies in the back and pulling out all these different weapons and fucking around with all these different types of ammos and, and weapons. It feels good. It, it feels like, you know, it's a, it's a little kinetic and energetic. It's not, it's not doom. It's not halo. It's not destiny by any stretch of the imagination, but it's better than most like kind of first person shooters that aren't like well established Call of Duty Halo type games. It's it's pretty damn competent. So we're really, really satisfied with the gunplay in this game. Um all right, let's let's go into the comments a little bit and and have this kind of round us uh loop us into some more talking points before we uh wrap up here as we are getting into the two and a half hour mark. So Cronky wrote in he says Starfield is amazing. Absolutely a 10 out of 10, and it's definitely worth the wait. The only question is, was this what is this what the Xbox needed to be? The new face of the brand, I'm not sure if it's the right genre for that role, but the game is certainly better than any other first-party title made in a long time by anyone. So that's high praise. Kronky really loves the game, and to that, Sam, Sam Frito actually responded and said, I wouldn't worry too much about is this what Xbox needs? Because in the grand scheme, this game will be played for decades to come, generations after generation. And holy shit, did one of my crew just walk out of the bathroom stall and leave a payday? Uh, yo, thank you, Bethesda. So, <laughs> so yeah, so I, I'm a little bit on with both of you on this. I, I think in the short term, Xbox does need this to be a big hit uh, because I think optically Xbox is in a sore spot, a uh, sore place right now. And at least until hopefully like Avowed and Fable and these other and Indiana Jones and these other games start to come and, and hopefully hit one after another, at least until we get to that point, there's a huge dry spell as far as these big AAA tentpole exclusive games. And Halo didn't deliver the way it needed to. And so all eyes are on Starfield. So I think in the short term, there, there is a need for Starfield to be this game. And I, I get what you're saying. And I think I, at, at one point I would have agreed with you that like, yeah, as a big open world Western RPG, the kind of game that to, to be that, that new face of the brand or that game to kind of like make everyone stop what they're doing and buy an Xbox. And the thing is, you know, maybe in the Xbox 360 days, I would have said, yeah, you need it to be like an action packed first person shooter or something kind of a little more linear. But like I said earlier in the show, like we've come a long way since, since 2011 and games like Skyrim actually play a huge role in changing this kind of narrative. But I mean, you look at a game like Elden Ring that sold so many millions of copies, despite the fact that it is a gruelingly difficult game, a game that the majority of regular video game players would not be able to play because it's just so challenging and grueling. But 
people bought that game's that game by like I think it sold like over 20 million copies at this point. Like we're in a different place with gaming where people have an appetite for obtuse, difficult, bear with me, massive open world style games. And Starfield is a lot, in my opinion, a lot more general audiences friendly and, and approachable than a game like Elden Ring. Um, you know, you think about like the combat, I'm talking about how the combat feels a lot like a first person, like a good first person shooter and how, you know, it's easy to just pick up, play, explore the menus and in the, in the inventory and all that is very clunky and cumbersome. No doubt about it. But once you get over that kind of stuff, the game itself is very casual. To just pick up and have an adventure. Starfield's the kind of game. And again, if you've played Bethesda games, you know this, but it's the kind of game you can just pick up on a Saturday afternoon play for three hours and just have your own little self-contained adventure and be like today in Starfield I went out to this planet I explored I found this tunnel I went to this found this guy this combat thing happened and I found this loot I took it back to this guy this guy bought it off me and then I fought that guy killed him took the thing he bought off me back after I got his money and like you just have your own little weird space adventure and I think gamers today players of video games are a lot more open and susceptible or receptive um, to this kind of experience more than ever before. So I do think Starfield could be that kind of game. You know, when I look at the sales and the engagement from games like Breath of the Wild and from Elden Ring and from The Witcher 3, I absolutely think Starfield can be that game because nowadays you look at what's big in gaming. People care more about a game like Skyrim or, or Elden Ring than they care about a game like Halo 17 or Call of Duty 400, you know, like, because... People are like, oh, another Halo game? Or people are like, oh, just another Call of Duty game? So, I mean, like, I don't know. Back in, like, the Xbox, Xbox 360 days, I get it. Like, the face of Xbox had to be some linear, action-packed, M-rated, gory gun game. It had to be Gears of War. It had to be Halo. But we've come a long way since then, and I, I think Starfield absolutely fits the bill, if you're asking me. Um, now, as for what Sam says here, uh, I think there's a lot of long-term, long, you know, long, long, long view. <laughs> there's a lot of there's a lot of credibility to what he's saying here, which is that, you know, if this game is, is good the way that a game likes to, I don't know. You look at, think about it like this Skyrim versus fallout four fallout four is play. It's still played to this day. It's still, you know, decently respected and all that. But Skyrim is the is the Bethesda game that's like, oh, people still be playing that all the time. They keep re-releasing it. People are always on it. The mod scene is hot. If this game can be closer to Skyrim and less like Fallout 4 in terms of its its resonance with player the player base, I agree with Sam. This could be one of those games that, like, in 10 years, it's like, we're still talking. Oh, my God. They're bringing Starfield forward to the Xbox Triple X. Oh, my God. You know, because those kinds of games, again, it's like, it's like an MMO you don't need to subscribe to or games as a service you don't need to go online to play. It's just a game you can pop in one Saturday afternoon even though you've already put 100, 200, 300 hours into it and just go have your little space adventure in your three hours of free time one Saturday afternoon and then turn it off and feel satisfied knowing I, I went on my little Han Solo adventure today and I had a great time and that's why I keep Starfield on my Xbox all the time because it's just, it's a reliable game in my, in my, in my kind of like, um, you know, my... Uh, my uh, my library of just just games that are like always like a, a nice constant like the way people just always have a game like Warzone or something like that installed on their Xbox you know you could imagine Starfield just being one of those games it's always there for if I'm bored and I just need some reliable casual fun to just dip into for a day so I don't know to me I think Starfield has what it takes to be that game the problem is so much of how the world receives this kind of game is dictated by the discourse and i think we live in this world where p 
people rob themselves of entertainment sometimes because if you don't care what the critics and the online talking heads have to say about Starfield and you don't have an expectation of it's No Man's Sky but Skyrim, you could easily, it's No Man's Skyrim. Um, you could just walk in blind, play Starfield, fall in love with it and be like, yo, this is the, go to work on Monday and be like, you got Johnson, you got to play Starfield. It's so fun. Here's what I did in the game. But we live in a world where people don't have just their own take or just their own opinion because the guy that bought Starfield, he might have had a wonderful time. He might have played 20 hours over one weekend on Starfield and had a really good time. But what he's going to do, because he's so influenced by the YouTubers, the podcasters and the Twitter uh, people he follows, he's going to go in. He's going to adopt a lot of the opinions of the talking heads that say this, that and the other about the game. And then he's going to play the game anyway have a good time, and when people ask, how is Starfield, even though he got lost in the game for 20 hours, had a good time, and really thought, wow, this is fun, moment to moment, he's still going to say to his co-worker, oh, Starfield, it takes 20 hours for it to really, like, set in and be good, and, uh, oh, this, the, the, space comp, this, the space travel is just so disappointing, it's just loading screens, and there's no real exploration, and the 30 FPS is a real downer on Xbox, it's kind of sad that they can't even get the game to 60 FPS when games like God of War Ragnarok run at 60 FPS, and those games are totally one-to-one, so that makes sense that I'm saying that, and that's the problem, is people rob themselves of joy, and they rob others of potentially enjoying something, because there's a weird insecurity people have when it comes to like, just formulate your own thoughts and opinions for yourself. People say this game is slow and it, and it starts out slow and takes 10 hours for it to get interesting. Maybe that's true for someone. I'm sure that is true for some of you. I'm sure genuinely some of you feel that way and had that experience. I'm here to say after listening to many, many people say that I did not have that experience. I, I thought within, within 20 minutes of the game, I was immediately like, okay, where is this going? This is interesting. So I don't know what to say. Everyone has a different experience, but we just live in a world where it's like, you go to the movie theater, you see the new movie, you sit there for two hours, you're completely entertained. You get out of the movie theater after being completely entertained, you go to work on Monday, and your coworker says, how was the fucking movie you watched at the movie theater on Saturday? And the guy goes, <gasps> regurgitating everything every critic said about the movie. Not his own opinions, not what he liked or didn't like, just what the fucking people on YouTube said and the critics said and the guy on this Twitter account that had like 1,200 likes on the tweet said because for some reason we can't have our own opinions we have to adopt other people's opinions and because it's not enough to just be like I acknowledge what the majority of people are saying or what a lot of people seem to be addressing but that was not my experience I thought the game was this or my experience was this and I think we rob ourselves from enjoyment that way. And then other people just blindly adopt that. Oh, I'm not going to play Starfield. Yeah, yeah, My coworker who played 45 hours of it in three days said that the game's not very good. He said it's not very good. He said it takes about 10 hours for it to get good. He said this, the space travel's a little disappointing, even though he pumped 45 goddamn hours of his own personal life in a 72-hour period. You know, he said he said it's not very good. And, like, that's that's the unfortunate, sad reality of the world we live in, where it's like... Why was a movie like Star Wars The Empire Strikes Back so fucking amazing in 1980? Why was it the best movie ever made? And why are we all in our fucking 40s and 50s now still just droning on and on about why Star Wars, the return of or the, the Empire Strikes Back, why was it the best movie after all these years? Yes, the generic response is, well, because we'd never seen anything like that in the year 1980. Sure. 
And I buy that to an extent. You want to know what the other reason is? It's because the fucking internet didn't exist in 1980. That's why. It's because people had to go to the movie theater with the friend down the road or the friend at school or work or their brother or whatever. Go to the movie theater, watch the damn Star Wars movie, and nine times out of ten, the person was entertained because it was an entertaining movie. And they said, gee whiz, that was a fun movie. And no one was, no kid was reading the newspaper to see what the critics were saying in the paper. They didn't give a shit. But now we have a world where you can be like 11 years old and you're like, what did Metacritic say about Starfield before I talked to my friends in middle school about the game? That's so sad, man. It's like, just, just fucking formulate your own experience and opinion, you know? So I think that's going to be a huge sticking point. That's why, unfortunately, it's like, the, the online discourse, it matters, but it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter because I played Starfield, came to my own conclusions, and thought the game's really damn good. It's got some shortcomings. It's rough around the edges. I watched Mr. Matty Plays talk about the goddamn game for three hours. Really liked the guy, really respect the guy, really enjoyed his coverage of the game. Disagreed with him on so much of what he didn't like about the game because, not because he has bad opinions, but because... My experience was different from his experience, and I recognize that I seem to have liked the early hours of the game a lot more than he did. End of story. It's benign, it's simple, it's straightforward, it is what it is. Yeah, long story short, Starfield, is it a great game? Yes. Does it have potential to be that next water cooler game? Yes. Is it probably not going to be that game because people feel the need to adopt the opinions of successful or smarter people and then pretend that that's their honest opinion? Probably. So... My guess is, like, I've been off work all week. It's my anniversary, off Monday for the holiday. It's been my anniversary. My, my girlfriend and I celebrated our eight-year anniversary yesterday. So I've been off work. Uh, I haven't I haven't gone, gone to work since last Friday. So I will come to work tomorrow on Thursday and talk to my coworker about the game. I'm very curious to see <laughs> if he's going to be like, bro, that game was awesome. Or if he's going to just regurgitate the shit GameSpot and IGN and Angry Joe and Video Game Donkey and all these people said. And that's no dis... No, no shade to any of those outlets or any of those people. But it's just a shame. It's like, I don't know. I, I just played Starfield and I don't see why it's not better than Skyrim, but I'd be fucking shocked if it's half as popular as Skyrim. I don't think it will be, honestly. I think it's going to be a huge game. I think it's going to have a lot of engagement. It's going to sell really well. It's going to drive a lot of engagement to Game Pass. I think it's going to be a really big success for Xbox. But I don't think the zeitgeist in the years to come will be... I mean, you know, Skyrim was just... A, an amazing game in 2011 and then Bethesda comes back in 2023 with Starfield and they do it again. I don't think that's going to be the narrative. I hope I'm wrong. I hope that is the narrative because from my experience, this game deserves that narrative. But at the end of the day, all I can say is I've played the game a lot and I've had a really, really good time with it and I highly, highly recommend it. Um, I think this is a great get for Xbox. This is obviously Xbox paid a lot of money for Bethesda, but this game is the perfect example of why Bethesda is going to be a great boon for Xbox. And, um, I don't know. I, I, this one of the acquisitions that I kind of understand and, you know, it's a little bit like Disney bought Pixar. Okay. That makes sense. Disney bought national geographic. It's like, what the fuck is this? Bethesda. It's kind of a little bit of like a, of like a Pixar move for, for, for Xbox. They bought Bethesda, Bethesda and Windows and Microsoft go way back to the PC days. And then when Bethesda came to console, it was always with OG Xbox and Xbox 360. And there's always been that that kind of parallel and synergy and relationship between Xbox and Bethesda. I think it's a, kind of a good fit. And uh, Starfield is just such a really excellent get for Xbox. as a first-party game, as, ex, as Bethesda's first, like, serious, legitimate, big 
outing as like, hey, we're Team Xbox now. This, for my money, for my time, for you know, from, from my perspective, what a fucking get. I mean, I don't do I don't do number scales, but if I had if I had to boil everything down to a number because I'm reductive and I can't talk about nuance, I would say Starfield is easily an A game, like at least no less than like a nine out of ten. It's just it has shortcomings. One's worth mentioning. Let's see what else I wrote. Maybe there's other things I, I, I said in here. Yeah, I, I wrote narrative game narrative is literally all about journey not the destination despite the traveling mechanic being quite literally the opposite and uh menus in the system are clunky obtuse and challenging to overcome causing a barrier to entry i suspect for new players uh i suspect full space travel a la no man's sky will be so will be would be so boring and just pat out the experience but then again starlink battle for atlas was so much fun so i wonder if perhaps uh that could have been great if they had decided to go that way. So I, I wrote all kinds of things. Uh, performance, really serviceable. 30 FPS, not a problem. Performance, not perfect. Game looks ugly sometimes. So I, I wrote I wrote things here. You know, I have criticisms. It, is, it, is it the perfect game? No. But does the experience I had greatly dwarf those nitpicks and those gripes and those issues I do have? Yeah. Can it be can it be a game littered with a lot of problems, but the the good the good and the positive were just so so high that like it's still a nine out of ten experience for me? Yes. And that's exactly how I feel about Starfield. Such a good game. All right, let's uh round out. We got two more Starfield comments and then we'll uh we'll end the show. So let's go in real quick. Um finishing up because we already talked about Sam Frito. He wrote in one more time and says Jesse, cruise ship etiquette is so warped. My simple ass comic book cartoon Xbox Marvel movie brain feels so awkward at a table of strangers. Reference to last week's uh, podcast about being sat with strangers at a restaurant. I know I I know I don't have Tourette's, but I feel an insane urge to F-bomb how good food tastes or remain serial killer quiet at a formal dining. Uh, I feel your misery, but that's okay. We got Starfield. Now into the Starfield. The game has put an insane smile on my face. Photo mode is worth getting lost in in itself. Bethesda, please continue to make, uh, to make content for this game for the next five years. Skyrim can wait. This shit is epic. Great show. Way of the Lao ain't smoking nothing. He just likes your interpretations of news and your views on the clusterfuck we know and love Xbox on. Well, thank you. I appreciate the kind words and the encouragement, man, for sure. And um, I'm glad to see you're loving, you're loving Starfield. I haven't fucked around with photo mode one time. I haven't been in the photo mode, so I don't I don't know. But I'll, I'll take your word for it. Um, but this is, this is the kind of stuff I love. I know there's just so much to explore in this game. And that's just like a small example of like how you're in interacting with the game versus how I'm interacting with the game. I'm, I'm not taking any pictures. I don't, I don't give a fuck, a fuck about any of that, which is again, just, I mean, maybe photo mode isn't the best example just because like every game has photo mode these days, but just the fact that we can all find different ways to interact with, engage with, and enjoy this game is, it's one of those ways that I'm like, that's why gaming tells stories and entertains in a way that movies literally can't and i think star i think starfield is just such a great example of games excelling and exemplifying that that attitude so really glad to see mostly a lot of positive experiences not because i just want you guys to echo my feelings on the game but because i believe it or not this podcast was started because i really like xbox i play a lot on xbox it's like a an ecosystem slash community where I just feel like this is like my place where I, uh, where I just like to spend my free time and I feel like I belong and have a lot of history and fondness for. And so when we have these moments of like, yo, Xbox just dropped a brand new exclusive game. That's so freaking good. Tell all your friends about it. It's just, ah, oh, I can't, I, I can't get Starfield out of my brain. 
these are the moments I live for. This is what the podcast is all about. It's about celebrating moments like this. Like these are rare. And listen, there's going to be a lot of naysayers on the internet trying to cause unnecessary discourse and strife over this game. And there's going to be a lot of stupidity thrown around, but just know this at the end of the day, Starfield is a really great game. And um, if, if you're enjoying this game, if you're an Xbox fan, this is a great moment for you to just really indulge in a wonderful moment of gaming history, a wonderful game. And it just feels really good to have this kind of feeling again. They're rare. They're hard to come by. Uh, I felt this way for a little bit when Halo Infinite came out. I felt this way a lot when Gears 5 came out, but I don't feel this way too often these days. And it's really nice to feel this way. And I would like to feel this way more often. I would like for this podcast to be a place where we can have positive, really like fun and exciting conversations about games that are resonating with us and making us happy. And I'm really pleased to, to say that while I still have a lot more to explore and do, a lot of ways to engage with this game and play this game that I have not yet done. And while there are many gripes I do have with this game, ways in which it could have been better, and I hope it gets better over time, Starfield has been a wonderful experience. I've had just such a really excellent time with it. And I, I just, you know, as a Game Pass subscriber, as an Xbox uh, fan, I just, I couldn't be more pleased with what games I have to play right now because Starfield is just... It's, it's just eating up my time and my attention right now, and it's so great. And uh, still a little salty that I won't be able to play Spider-Man this fall because I'm really looking forward to that game. But we still got fucking Alan Wake 2. We got Sonic Superstars. And I, I, I suspect Starfield will keep me busy for, you know, well into 2024. So, all right. Last comment on Starfield. Headhunting Halo wrote in says, Starfield is here, and I got early access last night. He wrote this on Thursday or Friday. Uh, I played from 7 p.m. until 4 in the morning. And got a nine-hour play in last night. The reviews are wrong about this game. There's so much to do, and exploration feels great. Pull up your scanner and head to the unknown areas. It's great. There's so much depth the game uh, in the game, and uh, don't give up without at least getting some of that, uh, some of that in. Still unlocking things. The more you give to this game, the more you get out of this game. Happy Starfield Day to my fellow astronauts. Uh, love you all to infinity and beyond. Amen. My my character's name is Buzz Lightyear, so I love that. Yes, yeah, this this is a, this is a really great example. Um, I have done zero random planet exploration, scanning, resource mining, all that. None of it. Don't know. Don't care. I will get to it at some point. I, I'm sure I will try to explore that aspect of the game. But as of now, no. My my next objective is to continue to woo the love of my life, Andresia, and also to try some of these faction uh, quest lines because I want to experience that. Also, after the first mission of the campaign, there's this one guy at a table who's like a, like a Mormon door-to-door salesman type guy. Um, and he's like trying to get you involved in this, this program or this thing called LIST. Uh, which is an acronym for something I don't remember. And I don't I don't know why, but that, that quest line is really calling to me, so I really want to go explore that and become a door-to-door salesman for this guy. So I'm going to do that this weekend for sure. But yeah, man, Starfield, great. I can't wait to talk about it more next week with you guys. I can't wait to hear more from you guys about how you're enjoying it or how you're not enjoying it. I'm sure a lot of you guys probably aren't really feeling it, and I'd welcome your feedback as well. Again, to just iterate on something I was talking about earlier, it's not that... If you criticize Starfield, you're lying. You can have criticisms of your own, and you can have, you can share criticisms with other prominent voices who have made mention of things like the space co- or space travel being underwhelming in the game, or or this or that, whatever it is that the main complaint is, or that the game takes too long to get interesting. That's fine. You're entitled to that opinion, and there's nothing wrong with that. But um, I don't know. I just I just want to have like a healthy conversation about these things that comes from like our personal perspectives and experiences and not just like, 
well, Twitter collectively seems to feel this way about the game, or like, oh, IGN gave the game a 7. IGN is is rigged, or something like that. Um, I do think it's funny that IGN gave the game a, set of, a 7, just considering the fact that IGN is usually like, like, I saw GameSpot give the game a 7, I was like, that's fair. Um, GameSpot is historically just so, they're they're very harsh with their, with their, with their number, um, with their scoring. So, a 7 from GameSpot is like, kind of a decent score. But then I saw IGN give the game a seven and shout out to the reviewer, Dan Stapleton. Like I used to be a lot bigger follower of like a lot of IGN stuff. I like Dan Stapleton. I think he's a really good voice in the games industry and I respect the guy a lot. So this is no ill will towards this guy. I do not know, but I do respect Dan Stapleton. Uh, but it is just to say that like a seven out of 10 coming from someone at IGN seems comical because IGN is just, I feel like IGN's always the, the one side that's just like, yeah, the game's a lot of fun, really great, 9 out of 10. In fact, that's one of the ways I, I actually relate to and appreciate a lot of the IGN culture and mantra is because it's like, yeah, a lot of games can have a lot of problems, but the, at the end of the day, if you had fun with the game, doesn't that trump mostly everything else? Not to say games shouldn't strive to be be better or squash their issues or, or improve on their shortcomings in any way they should, but... Um, I don't know. I, I tend to align with IGN a lot where I'm just like, what, what, what do you want us to do about it? A lot of good games come out. Like people rag on IGN cause they give out so many eights and nines and things like that. But it's like, yeah, games are, I mean, we're, we're gaming is kind of like a mature, like the, 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 the industry has kind of matured in the sense that like we've worked through a lot of like the rough N64 PS2 era, like cameras don't work on three on, on 3d games or like save points are too far few and far between like we've worked through like clunky controls and and like game breaking issues for a lot of games like we've gotten to a point where the medium is pretty mature and a lot of these developers know what they're doing and a lot of the games that are delivered to us these days are pretty good so it, it was funny to see IGN give the game a seven out of ten but I mean, to each their own. That's how Dan Stapleton felt about it. I mean, you can't can't fault him. Okay, so that is it for all the Starfield coverage. So we are now officially done with the podcast. So I'm going to go ahead, wrap it up, get this thing out to you guys so you can listen to it on Thursday. And like I said, I'm just really excited to hear everyone's feedback now that we've got about five days a week or so with Starfield. The game's officially out for all audiences. So really excited to see kind of how people are responding to it and how, how everything's going. But, you know, until next week, you guys, I appreciate you as always. Um, hope you're loving Starfield. Hope you're having a good time playing Xbox. And uh, until next week, be well, take care, eat some delicious food, and empower your space dreams. You're to, to the stars. Power your dreams, baby. Wow.